This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute... Something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls.
So, wete mihi nomen est Stella at Hawk S. Backrow the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 215, the Studio Ghibli Ghibli special <laughs> for January MMXXII. Mm. Backrow the Oracle is brought to you by milehighcomics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, I think my evil plan worked because I, years ago, I think when COVID started, I thought, what is the best way to grasp and pull Harry away from Donovan and make (laughs) me the chosen one? (laughs) And I thought, well, it's clearly watching some Miyazaki or Studio Ghibli films. And boy, has it been a journey, but here we are. So with me now to go through this, and we'll talk about what this actually is. It's, as I like to call him, Harold or Harrison or Harry. Shoot. Welcome. So presumptuous as to have so many names. It's, uh, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for having me on. Of course. And, uh, what? I can't think of a better occasion than to do this than on Hayao Miyazaki's 81st birthday. I know. I just saw that when I was scrolling through Instagram today. I thought we're recording on the perfect of days. So yeah, this is exciting. Hopefully we will pay great respect and homage to him. Yeah, hopefully. And then he'll be thankful to us and uh, as it, as it should be. Absolutely. I do want to say to start off that I want to also dedicate this episode to a pretty good friend, I would say, Zoom Yukonori. We had in the past had lots of conversations about these films and then any other anime film that I may have may have popped across my radar and I watched, she may have seen it and we discussed it and we had a thought of doing a similar episode like this, but unfortunately he passed away. So this goes out to Zoom. Okay, so what can you explain what we've been doing exactly? (laughs) Why did this begin? Because we didn't intend for this show necessarily to happen, right? Like we were just having fun during COVID isolation times watching, Mm -hmm. which I I had fun because, you know, I picked some of my favorites, but he put them low on his list, which (laughs) so you'll never see how low they are. That's how low they are. But yeah, we just started watching them. And I think it was you probably didn't you come up with an idea of of a crossover of sorts? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) If if this double crossover episode goes poorly, then I I guess we know who to play. I see. Um, for my part, I hadn't really seen any of these uh, Studio Ghibli movies. I'd seen a handful, some of the essential ones. Um, but Stella um, appeared to me uh, bathed in light as a you know a Ghibli aficionado, and I think she's seen all of them, with exceptions being maybe some of the movies that they just produced and distributed, like the Red Turtle. I don't know if you've seen that one. I haven't um, seen that one yet. Well, it didn't make our our cut, although I think it might be available on HBO Max. And that was the other thing: the timing there that these movies have always been out of print for me which either means that uh i didn't know to look for them or they were just more relatively expensive than other anime dvds so i hadn't really i don't have any physical copies of these so now that they're all mostly on hbmx with one glaring exception that being grave of the fireflies 
we just kind of went through each one in a mostly random order. And that was really nice. That was, yes, it was over beginning in the, I guess, the summer of COVID with Howl's Moving Castle. And then we just moved through them at a swift pace that, well, <laughs> maybe not because it lasted over a year. Yeah, but once we like locked down, hey, Wednesdays are the day at 8 p.m. that we meet up and watch them, then we, I think, did gain some good traction. There were some betrayals on both sides. <laughs> I also was late sometimes because I went on a run like the hour before and I was like, I just need 10 minutes and then I'll be ready. But it's been a lot of fun, I think, to watch oftentimes rewatch but watching also for the new time the for the first time it seems because you're watching with somebody and you know you would see things that I didn't notice and I think vice versa and then we we always had a, a good discussion at the end of our watching and talking about it. you always ask me first you know what do you think which I never liked because I wanted to know what you thought oh. first but now I get uh, I'm going to see what you, you know, totally unvarnished what you think of, of some of these, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So once they, after they listen here, where can they go to see the, the second part of this crossover? Yes. For part two forthcoming, <laughs> you'll have to check out uh, with eyeseast.com. I, I suppose we'll have uh, social media links because that's the only way that anybody <laughs> is sure. able to really do anything. And it, it'll be in podcast form. I don't know if you want to do a video for that, but we can, we can discuss the logistics later, of course. Sure. Yeah. So just to talk about what we're doing here, and then we'll actually get into Ghibli Ghibli. And I should say that I pronounce it Ghibli, and Harry pronounces it Ghibli. So oh, just yes. be aware. I think it's like a gif-gif situation. And I thought, well, I guess I could go online and see what it is properly. But, you know, let's let the mystery just kind of sit there. and I'll, Or I'll just sit in my ignorance. Who knows? But what we're doing, if you're fans of this show then you hopefully have enjoyed and listened to the shipper specials that I do with Donovan every February and where we usually pick a theme and then we do our top five of that theme and we alternate back and forth. So that is what Harry and I are going to be doing where we've picked our top five Ghibli slash Miyazaki films because some of them weren't always associated with Ghibli. And we'll talk about why we've picked them and have a discussion. And so it's good because both of us have seen everything the other person has seen. Harry has no idea what my, <laughs> my list is. He's wanted to know for a very long time. His has been public the entire time. Well, public to me the entire time that we've watched these because it was on a Google Doc where we kept track of what we had seen and what I had seen, what he had seen. And then he ranked them to my chagrin sometimes right in front of me. So I know what he, what his top five are, but he's fished pun intended. He's been fishing for my top five and I have not revealed. I think he just knows what my number one is, which I think many people know what that is, but okay. Well, do you want to begin and talk about just this studio and Hayao Miyazaki himself or, and just give background to people who may not know who, or what this is. I suppose it all began 81 years ago today. Well, uh, <laughs> out of the I, womb, he immediately <laughs> took to pen and paper. <laughs> yes. Well, if I was to do a biopic, I would do it sloppily and start there, you know, way before the story begins. But I think in the case of a great artist like Miyazaki, you do begin rather early. Yeah, he, he was a, a mangaka, which I suppose just means a guy who makes manga and animator very early on, pretty much 
with the uh, the evolution of Japanese animation itself. Some of his early works, I believe, were things like Animal Treasure Island and uh, actually a book that I have yet to open because I, I don't know. I think it might be in all Japanese. This one's called The Journey of Shuma. But if you can see, that's somebody who looks like Nausicaa. It sure does. <laughs> Studio Ghibli, it's, it did not really begin uh, with Studio Ghibli. I suppose it's a bit confusing, but Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind is kind of the, where we would first know of Miyazaki, I suppose, because that was the, the breakout success. That was a film from 1984 based on his long-running manga. Uh, as you can see, my second prop of the day, I'm expending them all now, this is a, a massive volume that takes even my extraordinary muscles to lift with some strain, just one and two. But this is, uh, I think I told Stella, if I had thrown this volume at you, you would die because it's just that big. <laughs> so uh, this is just what manga could do. They just write and draw forever. I don't know how they do it. Yazaki is definitely one of the great talents. Um, and yeah, yes, in adapting this film, it was Tokuma Shoten Publishing Corporation, which was the the company that put out Nausicaa the Maga. And then that same year, Studio Ghibli was founded, I believe, by Miyazaki, Isao Tegahara, and um, the third guy, who I, he's not mentioned here, but if you if you watch the documentary, he's the big-time producer, the documentary being in the Kingdoms of Dreams and Madness. So I believe their first official movie after Castle Cagliostro and Nausicaa was Lapita Castle in the Sky. Um, which I don't know that we'll be talking about today. Uh, very much a thematic sequel to Nausicaa. And so, um, yes, I, I suppose the last piece of trivia for me is that Ghibli, uh, the term, not Japanese sounding, I think it's a bit debatable where that comes from. Apparently, it means hot wind blowing through the Sahara Desert, which was used during World War II by Italian pilots referring to their scouting airplanes. And Miyazaki, of course, is a big fan of uh, planes and he says he wants to blow a sensational wind into the Japanese world of animation um, and I believe Ghibli which is the official pronunciation is a misinterpretation of the Italian word which is Ghibli which I think is the sort of gif, gif confusion yeah. and this information this little tidbit comes from uh, Nausicaa.net um, and uh, there are various histories that you can find online but uh, this is the one that I thought was interesting. And I think that's all I have. Yeah, Heidi of the Alps, things like that. I think some of these, some of his earlier work is variously available. I think they're just now releasing Future Boy Conan or something like that. I, that I think he had worked on. I don't know. No, so now that I'm in the spotlight, it's uh, <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Don't be nervous. Future Boy Conan, not Conan the Detective, is it? I don't think different? so. Isn't okay. that funny? It's a different Conan. Maybe I get in the... But his name's Future Boy? Yes, Future Boy. I assume that's some sort of uh, Astro Boy derivative. Potentially, yeah. I'm not sure. Interesting. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. That was awful. Sorry. <laughs> well, it gives people an idea of certainly who he is and everything. Do you... I often see on Instagram in particular... A quote, it pops up more frequently frequently than I would like. And I've sent it to you where he says something about basically being a sad man. Yes. Is People there? On, yeah. They, they love in particular juxtaposing him and Junji Ito, who's the great manga artist, uh, very popular now, who does things like, uh, was a thing, Uzumaki. Uh, he did one called Gyo Fish Attack, which was, I don't know. 
And he's got the famous one where people go into the mountains and they say, no, this is my hole in the mountain. <laughs> um, very scary stuff, actually. But he's like, you know, when he's uh, being interviewed, he's this happy guy. And Miyazaki, by contrast, makes very uh, brightly colored, uplifting works that are very emotionally full. But he himself is a very sad smoking man. And you can see behind the scenes footage of him working at Studio Ghibli. And uh, when he's not sort of flipping through and drawing by hand all these things, he's just sort of hanging out on the balconies and smoking, always smoking, uh, or making ramen and just being sad and talking about how everything is terrible. And uh, he's a very interesting character for that and for everything else. He's actually, he's put out a few books. I I had one before I moved to LA, which I had to get rid of all my books, uh, called Starting Point. And it was like from such and such year to the next, where he just has all these notes and Talks about how much he doesn't like otakus and things like that. That's that's mm. something else that's really attributed to him as well. The, the disdain for the popularization of anime. Interesting. Well, it, yeah, it's just really interesting to think how, yeah, he is creating some of these wonderful tales. And I mean, not all of them are uplifting, certainly. And, and I think when we get into some of these picks, we'll also talk about thematically some of the darker themes that are happening. There's a lot of anti-war pro-environmental things but you'd think he'd be kind of a jovial santa claus like man but you think he's not yeah well i feel like also though if you think about it artists i don't want to say all artists because I i think that's probably lumping them together unfairly but it seems like many artists are tortured inside you know for their art or perhaps that is the way that their art comes out you know i'm just thinking about van gogh and I don't know if it was Picasso tortured, but just like there's something going on inside that's really hard to witness in a human being, but what they produce is really beautiful. Right. Pagliacci. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for the history. So then <laughs> my second thing is also history. What is your personal history with this studio and the man? Honestly, it begins proper with you, Stella. So there's not what? much to tell. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd always known about Studio Ghibli, of course. I My interest in anime uh, is an outgrowth of my interest in science fiction, so I don't necessarily go through the catalogs of Crunchyroll anymore. That was more of an early 2010s thing with Kill a Kill. And for a moment, I thought, ooh, I could be an anime fan, because that's what you aspire to, is to be, you know, just instead of developing a personality and so on. So I knew about movies like Nausicaa and Princess Mononoke because they were genre films, and they were often on lists of you know, critics who I admired and appreciated. So it was sort of a natural fit. Uh, I wasn't too interested in the greater catalog, in part because it was kind of beyond my reach. I don't know why exactly looking back, I couldn't say whether they were out of print specifically, but, you know, things like uh, Ocean Waves and Whisper of the Heart, they kind of just blended together as like the Studio Ghibli movies. Totoro was like, oh, I was a kid's movie. I've been a kid for most of my life. And that was all about being like, you know, I'm not a kid, so... I'm not going to be interested in these silly movies about giant woodland creatures bouncing here and there without a care. I think was it the gummy bears, but eventually I, I think I just, I don't know. I, I actually, I really, I honestly don't know what kind of turned it around. I think it was just, you came in and said, these movies mean a lot to me. And uh, I believe, I don't know if I'm speaking uh, nonsense here, but I believe when we first started this, even our friendship was different. Like we maybe even got to know each other better throughout this experience. Things were a lot different. And uh, I feel like I learned a lot about your media sensibilities through the Ghibli experience. 
but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's actually not much of a story for me, unfortunately. I, I imagine it's something greater um, for you, but it, just in terms of like, you know, the, the scope of it itself, it really kind of began summer 2020. Would you, do you want to go back to that time <laughs> in our friendship <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning? Do you know too much now? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, could that be correct? I, I don't even know. It's, it's so hard to say. It's been such a blur. I would, well, I would agree with you. And I think it's something that Tom and I have experienced as well, because we weren't just watching the films and I wasn't being, I mean, it was intimate in the sense of the first two films I'm showing you were ones that are really special to me. I'm showing you Hal and then Kiki. So there's that piece. And then we were having conversations too. So in the beginning, I think it was probably straighter, like we're watching the film and then we discuss it. But then as it went on, I think our call times were longer and, you know, we would just talk about our days in the beginning and then watch the film and then afterwards and probably also end up with our days. So I think it, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it all blended together. And and yeah, I I think it didn't necessarily define our friendship, but I, I think it, broadened it and i would say that we are probably closer now than we were yeah a couple years ago when we weren't watching them for sure all thanks to studio ghibli all all thanks to ghibli yeah i will honestly say like i've missed being able to hang out on wednesdays at eight i'm like (laughs) oh this is sad no hairy time tonight i know well we've made uh some overtures towards perhaps a horror movie maybe maybe we're too we're both too scared Yeah. Some of those Ari Aster ones. Well, we'll see. Well, yeah, for me, I was actually trying to figure out which was the first one that I had seen. I was not an anime fan, not saying that I didn't like it, but I didn't seek it out. I think the only the first anime I had ever watched, I didn't really even recognize being an anime because I was that young and that's Speed Racer. And only when I recently, I guess in the past couple of years, got the complete series of Speed Racer, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the first anime I've ever watched. But I think I became aware of, without really knowing what it was, Ghibli Ghibli was spirited away because that was in a in a theater that my mother really loves and I enjoy going there as well. It's in a historical downtown part of Roanoke called the Grandin. And I remember it being in the main theater. And this must have been the time that it was like up for some big awards. And so that was like, oh, wow. So anime more so than just being a cartoon is actually an art form and it can gain renown and everything. And so afterwards, I remember, I think, renting it or watching it probably from Blockbuster and watching it with my mom, watching Spirited Away. So I think that was probably the first one. And then in college, someone had watched um, Howl's Moving Castle with me. And then from there, I think I did some research of of other ones to watch. And Kiki was probably the next one. And I always like those top 10 lists that people do. Like, what are the top 10? So, of course, I went through and tried to watch as many as possible. Uh, Grave of the Fireflies once is (laughs) enough for me. (laughs) I wish I could talk about it more. I mean, I remember it being very good but it's just so depressing that it's hard for me to think about watching it again so I don't think I shall and 
I ended up getting, I assume, a bootleg kind of compilation of all the films. And then if there are other ones that come out, which now it seems like G Kids also is like a production company that's kind of associated with it. I take a chance and sometimes the chance pays off and sometimes it doesn't. Like only yesterday I was like, well, it was an okay film. But I still, yeah, I can, there are some of them that I can watch, which will be on my list that I could watch every week or so. And then there are other ones that I do like repeat viewings, but I need space in between because I get really, I don't know, in, involved with it. It's not necessarily, it just, it's impactful, which there's one on my list that, that is like that, that I can watch it, but I would prefer not to watch it repeatedly because I think it, it just sits heavily with me. So it's been, it's been fun. I mean, these maybe might be the reason why I like anime a bit more. I always get upset when I offer, you know, let's watch this. And then someone makes fun of it, but they like cartoons. And I don't really understand that differentiation. And some of them are a bit strange, but it's not like I start off with, well, Spirited Away, I think it's it's interesting that that one, it has found such a big place because that one is pretty odd. Like, I wouldn't necessarily ask a first-time anime watcher to watch that. But something like Kiki is pretty safe. I mean, with the exception of having a witch flying around. So it's hard. Like, you put your, well, I put my heart on the line, like saying, hey, let's watch this because it's my favorite. And then it's not received well. You're like, well, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Uh, so this, I guess, lends into the next question of what is it for you that draws you to these films? What made you keep coming back every Wednesday to watch a new one? <laughs> well, first of all, I just want to say that I think there was probably only one moment where the both of us were watching one of these movies and felt this urge to be kind of like, hmm, like it was a really strange thing. And I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was in, uh, oh, shoot, what is that movie called? The one with the human beings. What is it called? <laughs> Arietti. Uh, yes, the secret yeah. world of Arietti, where the boy character is, who is a normal sized boy, is talking to our hero Arietti, who is a little tiny bean, and she's talking about how her race is dying, and he's like, "Well, that's that's too bad. What's it feel like to be the last of your kind?" And he's just like, "The direction, the acting was just so bizarre." But um, yeah, I think honestly, for the most part, oh, well, I mean, I wanted to ask you, like, I didn't realize that you watched these movies like a lot. I mean, was Watching is watching with somebody else. That's that's kind of like um, is that like a special thing for you? Does it does it enhance the viewing experience? Because obviously there are some hazards. Yeah, yeah, the hazards are a thing. I would say it enhances. I mean, it's like a, like I said, it's like an intimate moment. Like this is a piece of me. Let's see how you react to it. So you're kind of on. I always assume everyone's going to like what I'm offering them because I'm not throwing out something that's like super con controversial. So it's fun. But then also it can be a bit sad. So when I see, you know, Howl's Moving Castle way low on your list or Kiki's way low on your list, I'm like, what happened to Harry to have him choose it like this? <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, that. so it can be a good experience, but it's better if someone's already open to viewing anime. Right. So, And I think to, and to your question, you know, the Ghibli movies tend to be pretty safe. You're right. Spirited Away is a strange one. I, I think <clears> I showed... Um, my my non-anime watching friend Akira for the first time it was kind of it was a bit too much yeah and he told me recently like uh you know I you know I'm just not into that anime stuff I think remember that movie we watched <laughs> I was like the anime movie and so for Studio Ghibli I think there's a nice kind of comfort or even security in, in knowing that there's a certain level of quality to expect each time a new one comes out with two glaring exceptions there really hasn't been 
a movie that at least there's been a consensus that it's bad and and even like or average uh these are some of the best movies in general uh not just animated movies not just movies out of japan and so for me i i guess what i'm looking for if if a studio ghibli movie was to come out tomorrow or if we're looking forward to miyazaki's next movie which is called how do you live which i believe is something that derek zoolander says oh that's a reference then i guess i'm just i don't know i i, I really when i mentioned that i you know, I, I suppose I identify as a science fiction fan first in that way that we do. What I tend to look for in science fiction is is not like the conventions of storytelling, like character plot or, or character or drama or, or something like that. I'm not expecting an emotional experience from something that was written by Isaac Asimov or something like that. I tend to be drawn to visuals and aesthetics, and that's led me down a lot of weird roads, especially in like video games, which I used to buy based on how cool the space Marines looked. And, and so that's why I don't really play video games anymore. And so in Ghibli, like there's really with, I, I think almost exclusively, I don't, I don't think there's really a Ghibli movie that I look at and I'm just sort of like, Ooh, that looks really cool in the way that I look at something like, Oh gosh, I don't know. Well, ghost in the shell, which the second one is a Ghibli movie as we made. I refused. <laughs> uh, you know, that to me, it speaks directly to my uh, visual sensibilities. It's cyberpunk and whatever. Studio Ghibli tends to have a, a softer, you know, fantasy sort of feel to it, which I have only come to appreciate as as an adult, ironically. As a kid, I couldn't be bothered to watch anything that, again, felt like kiddie fair. Um, and then as well, as you discover when you watch these movies, they're very, you know, they're age appropriate, but very, very deep emotionally. And so that's kind of what I uh, learned to appreciate in retrospect. Yeah, I think depending on when you're watching them, you'll be able to get more out of it. So yeah. you could, I think I would hesitate to show a child Mononoke. Oh, yeah. Or maybe. Great fireflies. Well, definitely that. I was thinking about um, Earthsea. Yes. I, I would Don't hesitate. Show anybody maybe. Earthsea. <laughs> well, it takes such a dark turn at the end. But yeah, so I'm not sure about that. Well, plus he murders his father. So I probably would hesitate to to do that. But if you were to start in your teens and watch it, I think you would have an experience and then it would only grow as you became older, which I think is true with me and, and some of these films that I have watched again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, to that, I uh, <clears throat> when I saw Spirited Away for the first time, I think it was 2018 or 2019, I was just so overcome, overwhelmed by it. It was the first Ghibli movie that I'd seen in theaters, but also in a long time. And so I went out and I was like, I got to buy this movie for everybody. I think I bought a copy for my sister for that Christmas. And I bought a copy for my... Uh, young cousins who would have been like, I don't know, like three and five at the time. And I was like, this is probably fine. Um, <laughs> in preparation for this podcast, I watched that movie last night. And uh, yeah, I would, I would have to say, no, I think I made a mistake on that one. It's actually a little bit more intense than I remembered it. Um, not only for the beginning where the parents eat so oh. much that they turn into pigs, which actually frightened me, um, but also a scene later where the injured Haku in dragon form oh, is right. just completely bloody and the way yeah. he sort of <clears throat> travels into the, room and it, it ends up looking like a scene out of Evangelion with the blood spattered everything and so it's a bit more intense but obviously PG rated as most of these movies are Yeah, um, but a, a consideration. Yeah for sure. I think for me first and foremost actually I don't know what's first and foremost because it's kind of battling. I'm not a strong fantasy but then when I say that 
I'm thinking Star Wars. I like Lord of the Rings. So maybe I am. I just don't, <laughs> I don't know if I necessarily go out, I guess like literature wise, I don't necessarily seek out fantasy. So maybe that's why I'm getting confused, but I like the fantasy elements within these. I like that some of them have a sense of whimsy to it as well. Like it's just fun. And a lot of them have, like, I like the ones that have a weird coterie of characters that they're not necessarily all humans, which you'll see a couple of those on my list. And the mythology that some of them have, I think even though Mononoke is not on my list, which I'm sure people might yell at that. Why isn't that on your top five? I, there are some visual elements there that I think we agree are like just so stunning. Like the girl, I mean, the girl next to her mother, uh, after she has tried to suck the the bullet from her chest and you got the blood on like that's just that's usually what people know of Mononoke. And just from there, you'd be like, wow, that's really intriguing. And the mythology behind all of that was great. But I think a lot of things got muddied in that film, which we even I think I said in the midst of that one, I may have done this for a couple films like we need to talk about motivation, character motivations <laughs> at the end of this. And we Harry and I stopped at the end and basically said, like, OK, why was this person doing this to like figure it out? So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the mythology behind it and just the because you're just dropped in in media race with many of these. And so there's like this background they have got to figure out from characters doing whatever they're doing or exposition speeches maybe and so that's a lot of fun and no where have i seen a consistent studio pay great respect to creating and crafting these strong female characters and that's something that really drew, drew me to it i think before i knew that i was really looking for that but even more so now when i started to go through this with you just seeing all these people kiki and Sophie and Mononoke to a certain extent <laughs> and Nausicaa 100% mm-hmm. uh, and Fio and Porco. So just like these fun characters that may not, they might be leads or so many leads. I think that we saw might be like secondary lead characters or minor, but just how well they're presented and respectfully. So that even within some of the time periods, you wouldn't think that would be true. So yeah. I just, that's something that also I really love about this, this man, as well as this studio. Yes. I think that was maybe part of our, or at least my shock with Lapita, which I really thought I was going to like, cause that's my favorite anime director is a guy named Mamoru Oshii who did things like uh, ghost in the shell, the original and wrote, Jinro and uh, a bunch of other famous things I can't even uh, think of right now. But he, there was an interview where he talks about Miyazaki because they were colleagues and they trash talk each other all the time. <laughs> and he says that his favorite of Miyazaki's movies was Castle in the Sky, Lapita. And so going in, I figured, well, my, my sensibilities and his line up. But I was really kind of underwhelmed by that. And I think maybe part of it was that lack of a strong central female character because she was a bit wispier than you would expect. And also a bit more flat in terms of a character, but that movie does have a central couple. And I think that that's probably another consideration for you going in that these movies tend to be pretty shipperific. They do tend to be pretty shipperific. And some of them, I, I kind of want there not to be like Mononoke. <laughs> I feel yeah. like just, just be on your own Mononoke. I think you'll be okay. But yeah, others that, that does certainly come into play. Some of these 
some of these relationships that pop up. Yeah, I actually watched today because it had been a long time since I had seen it. And it was before I really gained a love for Lupin the Third, the Castle Cagliostro. And it felt similar to Lapida, like because oh. they were he was trying to marry the princess and like there was some sort of birthright and there was some their family, the Cagliostro family had this rich, the riches and everything. I thought this sounds like Lapita, <laughs> uh, but that didn't make my list either. I'm afraid uh, it feels like a Lupin. It doesn't feel like a Miyazaki or a, a Ghibli. It's just like another Lupin that I've seen. So interesting. Yeah. There's not, I wouldn't say any specialness about it. It also feels like every JRPG that you and I have never played because that segment of the video game world is kind of outside of experience, but Donovan knows. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. Very true. Do you have a preference between Japanese versus English? When yeah. You know, I think that this issue has even taken on a new wrinkle in recent times, but for me, it's just, it's Japanese or no way. I, I think I probably saw Princess Mononoke dubbed for the first time because my ninth grade English teacher showed that to us. I don't know if it was in ninth grade or if it was senior year when she was back again, but I think that was probably the first time I'd ever seen one of these movies. And so it, it must've been dubbed for the kids. Um, and then from there, I, I don't know when I, it kind of turned for me, but it was just, uh, it stopped being a question subs or dubs. I know that a lot of great work goes into dubbing, dubbing and a lot of those voice actors are really um, the most genial actors around who are, you know, willing to sort of talk to you on Twitter perhaps. But um, yeah, for me, it's just, I, I just prefer that original language. And also Studio Ghibli is interesting because it takes the celebrity roots. So you'll have like Christian Bale, ha- uh, what was that movie? How? Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. And uh, Claire Danes was in uh, Princess Mononoke and all these things. Um, and that can yield sort of interesting results. Um, it, it helps, I think, for when you're showing these movies to a crowd who really is not into anime at all. So it can be like, Oh, this is a, this is a Billy Bob Thornton movie. <laughs> that's, that gets them every time. But um, you know, Princess Mononoke also has uh, Keith David, for example, playing with the, uh, the boar gun and he's a veteran uh, voice actor. So you, you know, you do get interesting uh, people in there, but no, for me, I, I go with Japanese every time. Gotcha. I usually, I mean, this is separate from my, I guess my anime lifestyle because usually I prefer Japanese original, but for the Ghibli's, I enjoy the English voice casts, especially with, I guess, kind of the classic Ghibli films, yeah. just because I was, I think, really attracted to some of those actors. Well, actually, that's not true. I think it's just that that's where I first started, like how was it was just shown to me in English. And then I think after that, I just looked to see, oh, who's in this? Oh, Kirsten Dunst is Kiki. And yeah. and I have fun with that. So. For me, I, I, yeah, I have the English. I will say with the sound clips that we will have in the podcast form of this episode that they are in English so that people at least know what's going on. <laughs> but yes. Okay. So as we were leading up into it now, so then the big question is, how did you choose your <laughs> top five? <laughs> this is similar to a question that I like asked every night that I watched a film with Harry about, about basically what do you look for? But how did you choose your top five as we're going into it? Is it a nostalgia, emotion, art, something more? Is there any method to your madness? I think there's one on here that is nostalgia. But for the most part, it was a genuine reflection of the emotional uh, response that I had to the, these movies at the time. And I just had to be honest about that. I One of these movies, the last one we watched actually was Ponya, which I had had 
pretty high up for the longest time. I'd seen that like maybe when like a long time ago, close to its closer to its release than now. Um, and I remember really liking that, but I don't think I'd seen it in full until until we watched it a few weeks ago. And so that was kind of a, maybe a borderline cheat, but it was confirmed that, oh, yes, no, this one this is something that I really like. And then my number one came from uh, just a, a very overwhelming experience that I, I just, that's a no-brainer. And so maybe a couple of surprises here. Again, no, no Mononoke for me. So if you're looking for validation on that one, you will have to talk to Donovan who should be here as always instead of me. (laughs) Yeah, but here's the thing. Well, you say that and I was talking with him on the phone, question mark. I don't know. It might have been FaceTime. I don't know why, but it happened recently. And I said, oh, is Mononoke your favorite? And he embarrassingly laughed and he said, it's my favorite because it's the only one he's seen. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess technically, yes, that would be your favorite. But if you saw like Grave of the Fireflies, would you be like, that's my least favorite I've ever seen? Mm-hmm. Technically, it's your it's the only one. So, yeah, I, I would say, w- well, here's my question, because mine is also about love and enjoyment level and what I get out of it. But I feel like it might not match what my idea of a successful story is or the art. Would you agree with that? Like if you were to choose which you think is the best Ghibli, Ghibli, for whatever reason, you know, just everything together, you feel like this is the best one art wise. Would that align with your your sensibilities and your love and enjoyment? I suppose not. Um, Certainly technology wise, these movies get more beautiful every year as, you know, we just introduce better uh, computer assisted uh, art. I think in my case, the number one is something that everybody might agree on. But, you know, there's a lot of things like I think that Castle in the Sky is, is a pretty quintessential Ghibli movie, just as much as something like When Marnie Was There or something. Um, and again, Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, but there's, I don't know, it's, it's weird. And so in, I think uh, in the case of my top five, also, it's a, I'm satisfied with it because there's a, a good representation of their different genres and sensibility or uh, preoccupations. There's slice of life, there's more uh, fantasy, and there's when those two things come together. And that's kind of like, I don't know, the three Ghibli genres, um, which are sort of similar and uh, diffuse with one another. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean... There's there's some movies, especially I mean I think I say Isio Takahata is going to be kind of absent for both of us um, because we watched a lot of his well we watched all of his movies of course and surprisingly really didn't have much of a response to them. I mean you might surprise me with a, a dark horse uh, Yamadas or something, but um, you know there's the tale of Princess Kaguya yeah. which is considered a masterpiece and you and you look at that the critical response to that movie. And it's kind of, it's, it's amazing. You'd think it was one of the best movies ever. And I think our, when we watched it, it was kind of just like, okay, that was, it was honestly kind of boring up until like the very end, which the ending is really great and really like uh, almost overwhelming. But again, so that's, that's not going to be there. But I think if you were to ask people like, what is the best Ghibli movie that would be in a top five. And it's just, it's just not for us. Yeah. We've also seen just to, to, to say to others, we've seen some really bizarre films. If you've not seen the whole catalog, just prepare yourself for Palm Poco. (laughs) (laughs) And my neighbor, the, my neighbor, the Yamada, my neighbors, the Yamadas. That was, that was pretty crazy. That was crazy. And, But, but good. That was a really good one. Yeah. It's gotten to the point where now we share, Harry and I share raccoon 
reels <laughs> from time Although, to time. Technically, they're tanuki, which I guess is some sort of yeah. Japanese variant. But raccoons yeah. are um, very charming, very yeah. personable, and mm. just uh, weird. They're weird guys. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so before we even get, look, I keep delaying the list, but <laughs> I did allow Harry and myself two honorable mentions. Now, these will not have sound clips, but would you like to say what your two honorable mentions are? Can I make it three? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You already got me when you said two, and I said, I think I said one. And then I had to scroll up at the beginning of the conversation. I was like, okay, I did say one to two, so you're fine. I was just going to roll with it. I was like, yeah, okay, that's that's okay. Because I I mean, I think for me, it's kind of a strange situation because my two honorable mentions are Grave of the Fireflies and Ocean Waves. But I only really wanted to talk about Ocean Waves just because Grave of the Fireflies would have been on my top five uh, in a cheating way tied for number four. But I haven't seen it in a long time. That was another one that I watched early on just as part of uh, film, gen- general film appreciation because that is an essential film. But it's been so long and I was not... I couldn't bring myself to rewatch it like Stella. It's also, I don't think it's on HBO Max, um, but that's a, that's a really, really good one. I think everybody should see it um, guaranteed to, uh, to make you cry. Basically. I mean, it's just one of those movies that will make you cry no matter what. And, but, but ocean wave is interesting. I, I think that it is kind of the definition of an honorable mention. It's not uh, a great movie, but it was one that I just, I've really enjoyed for some reason. It was very unusual. And this one comes from, Famously, the younger staff at Ghibli, they were hoping maybe to, to see the next generation of artists come in and do this thing for a, a small budget. And it was broadcast on television, so it wasn't even theatrical. It wasn't a theatrical production. Um, and it went like over budget and over time and everything. And um, it is yet another, as we'll sort of maybe get into, another sort of Ghibli slice of life, kids at school, you know, bopping around the city kind of a movie. But it's got this... Uh, weird uh, cynicism to it that I think kind of surprised us both. It's a bit sharper. The characters are kind of at each other's throats and uh, mysterious, but I think it's, it is still uh, wholesome. And uh, when it gets to those sort of dramatic moments of catharsis, I think maybe all the more rewarding for it because these characters just seem, if not more real than just a bit different. And it's nice to kind of have, uh, I don't know, more complicated morally characters in rendered in such a, a ghibli way that you hear something <laughs> <laughs> how appropriate how appropriate do i even explain or just let the audience wonder what's happening well i i i didn't want to say this because it's so embarrassing but i, I live with my parents now and uh, I don't think that's embarrassing. You're transitioning to the next stage of your life. Right. Well, I think everybody lives with their parents <laughs> these days. Everybody yeah. in our age range. Why just... pay thousands of dollars in rent when you can be rent free? Right. Exactly. But anyway, they go to the bathroom sometimes. And that's, that's what you just heard. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. And not the bathroom, but yeah, the toilet flushing. And it would get to the point where I could hear. I can hear it through the microphone. And so as we were watching the films, it would go I'm like, oh, there it is. So anyway, I didn't even think about that happening tonight. So that's some, somewhat of a happy accident. Yes. Thank you, Mama and Papa Shoot. So ocean waves. Here's an exception to what I said about strong, well-developed <laughs> and respectful female characters. And to a certain extent, I guess you could still say that because she does 
she has a mind of her own. She's just a flawed female character. And I mean, she behaves as a teenage girl potentially could behave, but I just found her to be really awful. And that's why I'm just turned off (laughs) by that film because she's just bad. And the slapping that happens and the, Oh man, she is so flighty. I just can't believe she's like suddenly going to Tokyo. She's lied to her friend about it. To just to go see her father. And then she brings that one guy to have dinner or whatever with the ex-boyfriend. All these ridiculous <laughs> things. But I did enjoy those videos or the article and then the video, which I know you don't like, that there's some accidental queer undertones between the two guys there. I'm like, well, maybe I can get behind that reading. as long- Yeah, so they're thinking to be together. But it doesn't work out with the ending. But the one video I watched, I think he said, if you put the ending at the beginning, then it works out better because he sees her and then he leaves, but he's with his best friend. But yeah, so that was not on my honorable mentions, I'm afraid. No, uh, that's too bad. I, I think it came in at an interesting moment too, because I'd been kind of, I think Marnie was kind of the one that broke me. I was like, oh God, mm. it's just, it's the same characters. Uh, eventually I kind of get into that uh, rut with Ghibli movies where, because they are so similar in a lot of ways thematically and uh, in terms of subject matter and setting that um, if you are binging them, yeah, the, you can kind of lose, uh, you know, specific details like uh, Whisper of the Heart and Only Yesterday. And so Ocean Wave, when it comes up, it's like, oh, like here's something like very specific, like this girl is like really terrible. And I just found that so funny um, and honestly entertaining that, uh, yeah, I, I strangely find that movie endearing. <laughs> And mentioning Marnie, like there are some, uh, I feel like there are some queer undertones in that film. And it's clearly unintentional because you find out, of course, that it's her grandmother. But it's just like, what's going on here? I'm not really sure. And so I hesitated to ask Carrie when we were watching, like, okay, I've got a question. It's kind of controversial, but I'll ask you at the end. And then I laid (laughs) it out. But it's just, yeah, you have kind of a feeling about it. That is interesting about what you say. I wonder if. You know, if someone just prattled off a title, would I be able to tell you what the plot is? And I feel like, yes, because I think they're distinct enough. Or at least if you show me maybe a picture of like the the main characters, I could potentially do it. But I do see how and this is something I think we're going to get into more on your show where we talk about themes and maybe the universe and, and some repeat things that happen like dangerous bicycle riding, (laughs) but there, yeah. And, and potentially, I don't know if it's, I wouldn't ever say it's a lack of creativity that we're seeing similarities, but I think it speaks to things that the creator is really passionate about. Like again, anti-war messages and the environment and things like that, but just how do you do that and, and make it creative or do do something new with it. Do you feel like that is a negative thing that we are seeing some repeats? I mean, I, I think, I think it depends. I, I really, I do like that idea of an artist kind of revisiting uh, certain things and, and just redoing them. I, I think for both of us, it was in much sharper relief this time that Princess Mononoke really feels like a, a redo of Nausicaa, which I mean, obviously that's, that's a, not a, a unique interpretation, but I think that the the themes, cause we just, I think we'd watch them like back to back. Yeah. And I think that that's interesting where I, I think it gets troublesome is when you start a new Ghibli movie and it starts in a train station 
or uh, on the road and it's somebody moving from the city to the country and you're like, okay, this, like, oh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it usually ends up being good, but it's like, yeah. man, like, oh, doing I've it been again. here before. Yeah. yeah. And somebody's sick in the hospital, of course. Yes. Yeah. So there are some themes. There may be a chubby cat walking around the Hopefully. street for sure. Yeah. Well, my two, I only chose two. Wouldn't that be ridiculous if I chose three? <laughs> <laughs> and I told you, you couldn't do it. My two honorable mentions are Whisper of the Heart, which I won't talk about because for some reason. But another one is... And which I would say that this is the biggest surprise because I think if I had created my list going into tonight without having rewatched those films, this wouldn't have been even close to, I think, the top five. But Arietti, oh. Arietti is, I think, a big surprise for me as as how much I actually really enjoyed it. I thought mm. that the story, even though not much, if you think about it, not much yeah. actually happens. Because it's just the daily life of of the the little borrowers, Arietti yes. and and her family, and how they survive. And of course, this sickly boy, and um, he befriends her, but you're not supposed to know about them. And then in the end, the family ends up leaving with other borrowers that they have found. But I I really enjoyed it. I loved again the fancifulness and seeing how inventive the borrowers were using some of these large pieces of humanity, but smaller for them. Like how would they get a piece of sugar, for example? Like they don't need the whole cube. What do they actually do with that? How do they actually go out in the world and and do that sort of thing? So I enjoyed that a great deal. I thought it was cute. And then I think it was heartfelt too. I mean, the discussions that she has with the little boy post that scene, because that was just so ridiculous. It was just, I mean, it was clearly because he was dying. So he's like trying to potentially get into that mindset of what is it like to be the last of your kind? I'm like, this is an inappropriate conversation. (laughs) But then in the end, they have some really good conversations. I I really liked that. And of course it's, it's stayed with me because now for whatever reason, (laughs) the, subtitles on the both audio as uh, the English and Japanese track whenever it was a human being which is what the borrowers refer to as like the large people it said human (laughs) b-e-a-n and uh yeah we laughed about that the entire night and now whenever I say it I I say that repeatedly I just say human being and no one even thinks twice I think I'm saying being but I'm saying being so mm-hmm. that has stuck with me, but I enjoyed that film. Yeah, I was surprised. I I was I also enjoyed that movie. It's it's beautiful and it's um. I, I, there's a, a live action American version of The Borrowers, I think, with John Goodman, and uh, I think I looked at a few images of it, and it seemed like one of those mid '90s kind of like The Mask or Matilda, kind of like slightly mm. grotesque, maybe comedic. But this one, uh, to just cast aspersions on a movie I haven't seen, this one really did feel completely earnest. And uh, yeah, the inventiveness, I think, was kind of the thing for me. The the classic Ghibli world building, but set on this, um, basically, you know, seeing uh, the world from a different perspective. Yeah. And very literal this time, where you have giant, tiny creatures and insects and uh, the way they navigate literally the world or the kitchen. You know, that was really cool. And so it's just, yeah, it's just a... An easy and uh, very creative, interesting movie. 
Yeah, it's similar to A Bug's Life, which is one of my top five probably Pixar films in that you never really got a sense of, oh, well, actually rain can be really dangerous when you're at, you know, at this size and sort. So it does. Yeah, it really changes your perspective on things. Okay, so now we're going to get into our top five. Okay, my number five, because I am a uh, commercial movie loving heathen, I, I picked Ponyo. What is that? about bringing things to school for a reason. I know, this isn't school. These bushes are on the senior center property. What do you see? Oh, a goldfish? She's not just a goldfish, she's Ponyo. Ponyo? Let's see. Okay, but don't tell she's here. I won't. The rules are, look but don't touch. Look at her. Isn't she pretty? <laughs> This is surprising because I have very sophisticated taste otherwise, but this is a very popular movie uh, late in the catalog, generally from 2009, directed by Hayao Miyazaki. I think it's an original story, but it does recall, of course, uh, The Little Mermaid. From my anime list, the plot summary is as follows. A goldfish sneaks away from home and floats off on the back of a jellyfish. I mean, I guess that's true, but uh, well, the goldfish, you know, he's like a, she's like a person. So it's a, you know, it's a magical world where it's very frank. Um, let's see. The list continues after getting stuck in a glass jar. She drifts to the shore where she is freed by Suske. I'm guessing that's how that's pronounced. A five-year-old boy who lives with his mother, Elisa, in a house by the sea while his father, Koichi, works on a fishing boat. After healing and caught on Suzuki's finger by licking it, the goldfish is named Ponyo by her new friend. Unknown to Suzuki, Ponyo already has a name and a family. Her father, Fujimoto, a sorcerer who, who forsook. <laughs> who wrote this? <laughs> Did you get this from my anime list? Watch list? Yeah, yes. <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> forsook? <laughs> uh, way to pre read what you're reading aloud. Uh, no, I just. I copied and pasted it into a Word document because uh, you know how it is with uh, online internet talking. Sure. You don't want anything that's slowing anything down. But I still have the Google Windows open anyway. So. <laughs> um, so anyway, so he forsook his humanity to live underwater, searches frantically for his daughter Brunhilda. When found and captured, Ponyo rejects her birth name and declares that she wants to become a human. Using the power received from Susuke's blood, she grows arms and legs and escapes to the, the surface once more. But the magic released into the ocean causes an imbalance in nature, causing the moon to start falling out of orbit and the tides to grow dangerously stronger. Reunited with the Ponyo, Suzuki must pass an ancient test to restore order in the world and let his companion live as a human. I'm sorry, reading that out, it sounds like the most ridiculous movie ever made. <laughs> I forgot her name was Brynhilda in real life. Yeah, my Her pre-blood life. Yeah, and then it's like, uh, with the power of your blood, and then the moon starts falling. That's a... Uh, it's weird because when you watch the movie, which is very much a kid's movie, very, very bright primary colors, the storytelling is pretty simple. Like it, it I don't know, these these things are introduced obviously at a much more natural pace. And so it just feels like, oh, okay, this is what's happening next. And even you might feel the appropriate emotions, but when I'm just sort of spouting it out, yeah, wow, it sounds terrible. So don't, uh, don't <laughs> take this recommendation based on the plot summary. But that is, I suppose, the best possible picture um, that I can provide now, uh, speaking about it contemporaneously. And for me, I don't know, I just, I, I really, I 
when we watched this, I, I fired off an angry tweet as one does. And I just said that, you know, one of the reasons why Ponyo was so great is because it takes place in the ocean primarily where Miyazaki usually is preoccupied by the sky. And there's just a lot more stuff in the ocean. And in this ocean, there are, you know, coelacanths and uh, little endomites or whatever those fossils are called that sometimes inspire uh, LGBTQ plus films. I don't recommend uh, so that. So it's film. a very. <laughs> You'll have to give that plot summary too. And so it's just a very full frame that I really appreciate about movies in general, especially genre movies. One of my big disappointments with the Star Wars sequel trilogy, for example, is that it lacked the depth of frame that came with the uh, those awful, awful prequel movies that that were just you know they just looked so amazing, despite the uh, the horrid CGI that ages like a fine. It just it looks terrible now. But anyway, so in, in Ponyo, you look at that ocean, and uh, there's just all sorts of interesting things bobbing around. In fact, too much detail, as I had to out myself as being a, a tripophobe, I believe is what it's called. Yeah. Stella, as we I was watching. about to mention that. I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because at some point, when these goldfish, um, when they coalesce, which they often do on the frame, it just creates a pattern that, like, you know, interfaces with my brain in such a way that I get, like, goosebumps, and it's like, oh, no, it's... I think trypophobia literally is like a fear of holes, but it's a fear of like a specific pattern. And when I say fear, I don't mean I was running screaming. It, it was just, it makes me physically uncomfortable. There's some sort of psychosomatic effect um, that I'm sure is indicative of a completely stable frame or mind, mind frame. Uh, regardless, Ponyo is, it's just a really nice adventure about these two very young kids. I mean, these are probably the youngest protagonists that we have in Ghibli movies other than Totoro. Um, where you don't even have like the older sibling. It's just like he's, yeah, he's a five-year-old boy and Ponyo is essentially like a a baby or an infant. I don't know if they fall in love, but they're just like really good friends and their relationship has all this cataclysmic effect on their little town, uh, which is a nice cliffside or uh, sorry, seaside community. There's not even really like a conflict in this one. Uh, Speaking to motivations, it's kind of, difficult i think we were trying to piece together what the villain quote-unquote wanted um before he sort of just revealed as like another guy or maybe misguided and so there's never really a great sense of stakes or threat or menace it's just a nice movie um with a lot of really beautiful visuals and a great sense of movement um so it's just yeah it's just a simple uh nice movie that i think makes sense for my number five Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's not on my number five, my top five list rather, but it's, yeah, I go back and forth whether like what this love is because they clearly do love each other. That the test that is supposed to save, I guess the world is a love test, you know, is that true love? But I I feel like at this moment, it's probably just like a sibling love. And then perhaps it, you know, would develop into to something farther. So there's nothing, I think, erotic about this love, but it is really, <laughs> you know, like that word, but it is really <laughs> precious. I think how quickly Ponyo attaches herself to Sasuke and um, that one moment where they finally stop. I think they were all oh, the mother and her crazy driving. I just remember that, but they finally <laughs> stop at the house. And then the little girl is there and the mother's like leaning down to maybe hug her, but she runs right past her and into Sasuke's <laughs> arms, which I, I think is a testament there. And then just, you know, some of these films that we've watched, there are interesting relationships between parents and children. 
and yeah. what that is like and and is the child actually acting as the parent but here even Sasuke is in grade school and he clearly has maturity beyond his years and and at one point he goes to rescue his mom because of everything that's going on he's worried about her so you have a, a mature young boy and um to a certain extent I guess trying to even though he doesn't know that he and Ponyo have caused this like he's trying to fix what has happened by yeah. by going to save his mom but yeah there are some really beautiful images or imagery I guess I should say I think one of my favorite parts is when Ponyo's mother Brunhilda's mother comes floating voiced by Kate Blanchett uh, if you're watching the English mm. but just like the beauty of all of that uh, <laughs> I think that's when all the ships are like stopped and they can see everything but yeah I I would say really visually a treat but just not my my favorite. And I think you asked me at one point, didn't you, whether these kids annoyed me? Or was that another Oh, one? yes. Because well, we'll talk about only... some some kids that annoyed right. me. But this one did not annoy me as much. There wasn't as much screaming. So No. Yeah. Though Ponyo was quite hyperactive. I don't know if I could have that kid in my house, but um <laughs> although not in my house. Um, you know, I think that <laughs> the another nice thing that I when you were talking about the uh the relationship between the mother and the child. Like, well, first of all, the, the giant woman voiced by Kate Blanchett is another nice detail. Um, I just like that in general, whenever there's like a, you know, a normal sized guy and a giant woman, that's, that's a nice, that's a good ship. Yes. Um, pun intended. But also <laughs> I, I think that Ponyo is a really good, it, it has a, a nice sense of a community which actually surprisingly doesn't really exist, I wouldn't say, in a lot of these movies, which tend to feature people who are pretty closed off or just part of a school, which I suppose is a community of a different sort. But in this case, um, like kind of like in My Neighbor Totoro, which this movie is very much similar to in a lot of ways, that one kind of opens up at the very end and you see, oh, all these people are sort of involved in the search for the missing girl. Um, in this case, it's sort of uh, established throughout that this is a town um, and so when things start to go bad, you see how people pull together, um, sometimes literally. And uh, that's, that was just a really nice detail that I enjoyed. You had the, you know, wise grandmas in the retirement home yep. who sort of like share this common uh, language with the tiny kids who like they just they can sort of speak to each other naturally in the language of like magic or whatever that adults just don't understand. So that's that's a nice piece. Yeah. And I will say in contrast to The Little Mermaid. I wouldn't necessarily say that Ponyo is a feminist film. I don't know if I would necessarily mm. say that, but the positive thing about this is that Ponyo isn't giving up anything in order to be with the man. Right. And yeah. again, I think there's more of a friendship or platonic or agape love going on between the two of them. So whereas of course, Ariel had to like give it all up and, you know, <laughs> Eric and, his superficiality, but it seems like um, Sasuke really loves her for just being the weird little fishy thing that she is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very, uh, that is kid logic, but it, uh, it is properly communicated. And I think that that's, that is probably where the movie falls down for people. If you could even say that about a movie like Ponyo, there's not the same uh, dramatic heft that you might be expecting. I think this movie still managed to to spark a twinkle in my eye even still, but you know, granted there isn't anything where you're like, Oh my God, my heart, uh, which will happen a lot uh, with Ghibli. So this one is very, it's light. And I think that it's probably one of those movies that people will talk about and say, well, it's not one of Ghibli's or Miyazaki's masterpieces, blah, blah, blah. It is really good. 
Because that comes up a lot because he's just one of those filmmakers who, you know, really established himself with a lot of classics uh, very early on in his career and throughout. And so this is definitely a later era Miyazaki movie, even though at this point it's more than 10 years old. Very, I mean, it feels not of the moment, but uh, contemporary. You could you could throw this at a child today and they would not be like, oh, don't, I don't want to watch this old thing. Um, although it is not a TikTok video oh, as the kids are into these days, yeah. which, you know. To their detriment and ours. I will say <laughs> there are some environmental messages, but they're not as heavy handed, which is potentially because... Right. Miyazaki knows what his audience or the intended audience is. But I mean, as mm-hmm. we were going through, I think it was one of the initial scenes of seeing like the underwater as well as the above water and seeing all the garbage. And I yeah. think Ponyo, I guess Brunhilde at the time, doesn't she get captured in a trawler and it's got all this garbage with there. And and I think the father <laughs> even mentions how dirty the human beings are. So there, there are messages there, I think, but not as heavy, you know, with some of the other ones that we've watched. Right. I, I don't know that it's necessarily, well, it might be, uh, I think there may have been an attempt to weave that into the narrative because it is about like, you know, Ponyo, you can't be in the human world because they're dirty. But I don't think that, again, speaking to the the villain's motivations, like he was so kind of unclear in what his whole thing was about that I, yeah, it's difficult to come up with a coherent message at the end. And so it was just sort of there, not in the background, but just in the way that the human world was uh, literally rendered that the industry produces waste and that waste filters down into the ocean. And that's clearly not a good thing, but it's not like a war between these two worlds as as it is in Princess Mononoke. Would you consider her father a villain? You keep using that word. I would consider him an antagonist. Oh, sure. Antagonist. Yeah, I guess I, I use those uh, interchangeably, though oh, I okay. shouldn't. Yeah, I was going to say, I just see it differently, you know, as the, like the villain in, or the guy in Laputa, I would consider that a villain, but Ooh, maybe yes. like the armless wonder in armless legless wonder in nausicaa i would consider (laughs) antagonist yes so i think but we could chat about that but i just felt like he's not evil but he's certainly doing some you know some shady things yeah i think i think he's both both misunderstood and misguided i suppose there's that interesting scene where he is uh Spring water when he first comes ashore. Oh, yeah. this strange contraption. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I forgot how ridiculous that is. Yes, yeah, yeah. very good stuff. That's and I mean that's like watch out for did. people like that. Yes, you can't just be because she thinks it's like weed killer or something. <laughs> um, yes. Oh man, stranger danger. Anything yes. else on your number five? I don't know. There's really not much to say about Ponyo. I, I think it may have been nominated for Best Animated Feature because there's approximately five animated features released every year, so they all tend to be nominated for that yeah. award. But um, I don't think it won. Uh, it must have been a big year for Pixar. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just a really nice movie and one of the few that really, really feels like a children's movie with like no strings attached. Like There's no really greater message as an adult you're not going to come away with your mind totally blown it's just like it is uh just it's, it's kind of uh borderline color and light but it is obviously not you know offensive in its content like a lot of uh dreamworks movies or illumination pictures or anything like that it's just it's it's, it's nice yeah okay well my number five <laughs> you have no idea no <laughs> 
is Porco Rosso. I actually had trouble with my five and four. I literally ordered this stuff while I was watching Casco Cagalostro. So that's, I finally came down to it. So Porco Rosso. Phil, what do you think you're doing? I'm rigging up my seat. Just give me about five seconds, okay? You are crazy if you think I'm letting you fly home with me. Shh, the secret police will hear you. Theo. There's a warrant out for my arrest, you realize. This is not a joyride, sweetheart. So if Here, you... hold this for a second, please. Oh. Thank you. Look at this. Ta-da! I just whipped this together and it fits perfectly. It's a bit of a tight fit in here, but it should do. Would you hold this, please? Theo, this is way too dangerous. I'll be taking off from the canal out back. I don't even know if I can get her off the water. Uh-huh. I know. That's why you need to have the engineer with you. So I can make adjustments to the plane. Don't you get it? I'm off to fight Curtis. I will have bullets flying over my head. I can handle that. I'm responsible for this plane, and I want to do my first job right. Think about it. I'm a known womanizer. I'd live on a deserted island in a small tent. That's great. I love camping. That's not the point. Take her. I'll give you a good deal on her salary, and I know she'll come in handy. Besides, I want you back in business so I can get paid. You're this girl's grandfather? It'll be good for her. And I'll install this so you two can chit-chat. So you're okay with turning her into an outlaw? Mm-mm. I'm going along as your hostage. See, that way all my relatives can tell the police they had no choice but to help you. So please, Porco, let me come. I can help you. You better take out one of those machine guns. What? There's not enough space in there, even with your tiny butt. Now take out a gun. Thank you. And you know, my butt is bigger than it looks. I'll have the gun out in two seconds. If we hang around here much longer, even the old ladies will want to come. That'll cost you a lot of moolah. <laughs> in the Japanese is Kurunai no Buta, literally crimson pig. Uh, it's can also be uh, red pig in Italian or red pork. And in a broader mm. definition, it can mean red swine or red ham. So just be aware of that. But it is a 1992 adventure comedy film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. And it is based yes. on the Hikote Jidai, The Age of the Flying Boat, which is a three-part 1989 watercolor manga by <gasps> Miyazaki. <laughs> okay so here's the plot after again from my anime watch list let's see if this one's uh as good as yours after a curse turned him into a pig world war one ace marco peugeot becomes porco rosso a mysterious bounty hunter who takes down sky pirates in the adriatic sea he whiles away his days on a secluded island rarely leaving other than to collect bounties or to visit the beautiful gina a songstress and owner of the hotel Adriano. One day while traveling to fix his faulty engine, Porco Rosso is gunned down by a young American hotshot named Donald Curtis. Thrilled <laughs> at the possibility of fame, Donald boldly declares that the flying pig is dead. Not wanting to disappoint Gina, Porco Rosso flees to the famous Piccolo SPA airplane company and takes out a massive loan in order to repair and improve his fighter plane. 
There, he is surprised to find that the chief engineer of Piccolo SPA is a 17-year-old Fio Piccolo, who hungers for a chance to prove herself. With Fio's improvements, Porco Rosso prepares to challenge Donald officially and regain his honor. And it doesn't end in a dogfight, but do you remember how they're fighting <laughs> on the beach and they're like so tired and so beat up? Uh, this is one of those films that I could probably repeatedly watch just because it brings me joy. You don't ever find out how he got this curse. And in the end, I don't think it even matters. Just know that he has it and see the people that he interacts with and how they either don't like him or they admire him or they love him in the case of Gina. There's certainly shipping. She always waits for him in the garden. And at one point, I think he might show up and maybe the curse vanishes. But he is, <laughs> he seems like a nice guy, but he also says very piggish things um, in, in how he deals with women sometimes or with Theo being around. The grandfather's like, you need to, you know, keep your hands to yourself sort of situation. But I think you can see his heart not only in how he relates to Gina, but with Theo and how much he cares for her. And she's 17 years old. So, of course, at the at, at the beginning, you'd underestimate her, but to your detriment. And then just their relationship. <laughs> and she ends up leaving with him and helping him out. And then she gets notoriety by these sea pirates and and... <laughs> They love her so much, but it's just, I think it's a really fun film and I don't know if, I guess we could say that it's anti-war potentially, or at least we see what the results are of war and wartime. Oh, I don't know. There are just so many wacky things that happen that I almost <laughs> don't take it as seriously as like a war film, you know, compared to like the wind rises or something like that. But Porco Rosso, I, I just find him a really intriguing and funny guy. And even though he does say piggish things, he has a heart of gold and he really fights for what matters and he has good friendships and he is a loyal pig to other people. <laughs> so <laughs> I really recommend Porco Rosso. I mean, it's bizarre. Like he's a pig, but I just like totally buy in right at the beginning. And if you're watching the English, it's Michael Keaton as Porco Rosso, which is a lot of fun. Oh. But uh, yeah. So what did you think when you were watching the big <laughs> PR? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had known of Porco Rosso. I mean, I just knew about it generally, but there was that uh, image that went viral, which was his uh, quote in the movie theater, I think, where he says, I'd rather live as a pig than a fascist or a capitalist or something like that. And he, he is a very interesting character in that way. This is more of a comedy than I was expecting. But I mean, obviously, when you have this central image of a pig man in a plane, <laughs> like there's only so much. I mean, you got to sort of be true to that. Yeah. Um, and I think that the movie is uh, to its credit. And so... Um, yeah, it just sort of understands that there is something very uh, compelling about that central image. And the, the resulting character from that situation is really, it, it is interesting, or he is interesting. I think Michael Keaton is a, a very good uh, indication. That's a good casting pick right there. And and this movie, I think, is important, generally speaking, in the Miyazaki oeuvre, because it not only anticipates uh, his more or his most personal work in The Wind Rises, as you mentioned, you just you have all of that attention, very, very minute attention to mechanical detail. Um, you know, when the the anime people talk about mechanical design, they talk about Shinji Aramaki, they talk about the genocide for guy, can't Kuichi Wahada. 
you know, they, they do some amazing stuff and they did certainly in the 1980s, but I think Miyazaki maybe is a bit underrated in this regard because not only is there just so much beautiful, stunning detail on the planes and the vehicles, but the, the sense of weight and physics that exists in these flying scenes when they're just trying to get the plane started. Um, it's really kind of breathtaking. And I think a movie like this does, it, it, it maybe it calls into question, like, well, why does it even have to be animated? Because the only fantasy element is Porco Rosso himself. But I think that there, um, I don't know, maybe it just, he, he finds a way to draw your eye to those details when it's so deliberately rendered and composed. And then by contrast to all that sort of the serious aspect of the movie, I, I do appreciate that it does end in like a slap fight, that the movie is sort of uh, low stakes despite taking place against the backdrop of a war, yeah. an historical war too. I mean, this is, a, I think, like based on, you know, real, real historical events. So it's just a very interesting take. Um, and a very uh, clever, surprising main character who is uh, very much a pigman. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, I think that he's in trouble by some military officials, be- like on yeah. both sides, because I think he's left one army and the other one, of course, he's an enemy of. So clearly <laughs> he likes his bounty hunting um, and doesn't. And I think part of it is because he lost his best friend who happened to be Gina's husband. So you do see the cost of war. So there are some of those, I think, serious elements as well. But yeah. I don't know. I think it's I think it's delightful. <laughs> Probably the only <laughs> time I don't sit there wondering like how did he get that curse? Because you're not shown <laughs> and you're not totally just like it is and you just and I think that's the power of it for me anyways that I'm just com- I completely buy into it and I'm with it like yeah there there's a pig right here and everyone else there that's the only fantastic element you're right but I I buy into it and just like this is the real world he just happens to be a pig man. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. I I think that, that that issue definitely speaks to the way that these movies, the just the inherent storytelling. I don't I don't even think that Nausicaa opens with like a text crawl. Like that's just so seemingly anathema to the philosophy of how these filmmakers approach story, which is the exposition is just um like I don't know, drip fed to you at a at like the perfect pace that you are not brought to question these things because you're just involved in the moment. And there are moments where Porco Rosso is very involving um, emotionally, again, surprising because it is more of a comedy. Um, And we'll talk about the balance of comedy and drama later, but I think that this one strikes a pretty good one. Yeah. It's just, I mean, this is the movie where a pig flies a plane. So you got to see that anyway. You do. Yeah. You know, it's good. His curse somewhat resembles Sophie's in that, you know, at unseen times, uh, he does revert back to being a human. But when someone points attention to it, it immediately goes back to being a pig. Uh, Sophie in Mm -hmm. House Moving Castle. But yeah. Okay. Interesting. (gasps) On to your number four. (laughs) Moving right along. My number four is, well, it's my neighbor Totoro. (laughs) (laughs) Nay. The doctor said that mom's not doing well, so she doesn't get to come home this weekend. (gasps) No fair! It can't be helped, May. What if she came home early and it made her even worse? It's not fair! May, we just have to wait a little longer. No! You want her to die, May? Is that what you want? No! You're such a baby! Just grow up! Come on, May. (laughs) 
I was surprised, honestly. I, I didn't think that I would have as uh, significant a reaction to this one. I mean, Totoro is pretty notorious. I think along with Spirited Away, it's kind of the like iconic Ghibli movie in terms of it literally spawned an icon. Um, in this case, Totoro and his little Woodland Pals and Spirited Away, No Face. Yes, and, and in fact, as you remind me now, uh, Totoro has become the official Studio Ghibli mascot <laughs> and helped us synchronize our, our uh, playthroughs of these movies because um, sometimes you would be watching it on the DVD and I'd be watching it on HBO Max always, but we could... Trust that that logo would be there. Yes, the that did have, yeah, help us. So he was always a guiding spirit. Uh, let's see. My Neighbor Totoro. The film, which is set in Tokorozawa City, Saitama Prefecture, tells the story of a professor's two young daughters, Satsuki and Mei, and their interactions with friendly wood spirits in post-war rural Japan. That's the short version from Ghibli.Fandom. My anime list has... In 1950s Japan, Tatsuo Kusakabe relocates himself and his two daughters, Satsuki and Mei, to the countryside to be closer to their mother, who is hospitalized due to a, long, a long-term illness. As the girls grow acquainted with rural life, Mei encounters a small bunny-like creature in the yard one day. Chasing it into the forest, she finds Totoro, a giant mystical forest spirit whom she soon befriends. Before long, Satsuki too meets Totoro, and the two girls suddenly find their lives filled with magical adventures and nature and fantastical creatures of the woods. So I think for me, My Neighbor Totoro really captures that kind of uh, one of the the great things about not only Ghibli movies, but also as I've as I have witnessed in the past Pixar movies, where there's always something sort of going on, and uh, it just you just get the sense of creativity in every frame, every corner, which is something that Roger Ebert talked about in his write up on Spirited Away, um, and in this case, well, in a lot of Ghibli movies you'll see like little creatures chattering around princess mononoke there's a lot of scenes where or or there's that one scene in particular where i can't remember who's carrying who but the main character ashitaka is carrying wounded soldiers back to the forest and he meets the chittering woodland spirits and they're sort of like imitating what he's doing uh sort of just playing around and it's just right, you know yeah. this small detail that is drawn attention to but is it just it it makes the world feel bigger and My Neighbor Totoro is essentially a movie about that. Um, it is a movie about those kinds of moments blown up uh, to be the whole thing, where you have the key sequence uh, where Mei and Satsuki are waiting in the rain for their father to return home at the bus stop, and Totoro just sort of sidles up next to them, and he's just standing there, being sort of entertained by the rain hitting the umbrella. And that is just what this movie is about. It's about just kind of kooky moments, but not in a way like Pompoko. <laughs> Uh, this one feels a bit more strangely reserved in a sense, especially for a kid's movie. Like it's not just bounding with annoying franticism. Although there are the two kids who apparently in the English dub are quite uh, insufferable as uh, Stella might attest to. Um, I think it's me, the fanning, I, I, the fanning, it's Dakota and L fanning, oh, which oh, I find amusing. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, but keep going. It, yeah. They didn't bother me so much, um, and I wonder if it was just a difference in the the, the, the audio track, but um, I found them quite uh, endearing as they were sort of just running around this new house that they're moving into and discovering living soot, which is something that will come up later. It's it's just kind of like a weird, fun movie about this cute aspect of the woods, and it, it fills you with wonder, and they there's this great scene where they're trying to summon a great tree out of the ground. And so they're doing this kind of a uh, dance ritualistic dance in the garden. Um, it's very cute. And then in the end, 
it's it's it surprisingly becomes uh dramatic all of a sudden and it feels natural and earned and it kind of takes you by surprise um because there is this underlying sadness i guess in the movie that there is this mother in the hospital um so you might be able to make some sort of like pan's labyrinth heavenly creatures argument that maybe this is just the the imaginative throes of grief it never i don't think that that's really uh, an interesting look at this particular movie um and regardless uh it, it just it just makes for some uh interesting honestly drama this the uh, clip that i provided stella is a uh, an argument that just comes about naturally between two two siblings and uh i think part of what's interesting about this movie and maybe ghibli movies uh in total is that their child characters really feel like children um, the way that they are sort of governed by pettiness or they just have this outburst of emotion that they can't control. They're not constantly like making pop culture references. They just they feel like kids. And sometimes that is annoying, but sometimes it is also endearing. And in this case, it bends toward that endearing end of the spectrum in a way that is, um, you know, almost alarming uh, and, and becomes sort of uh, rewarding, I think, yeah, at, at the very end. So, yeah, surprising, surprising movie that uh, I, I just really enjoyed. And there's a cat bus. Oh, my God. I went the whole thing without mentioning the cat bus. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, this <laughs> is not on my top five. <laughs> <laughs> I know that people love it. I know that it's probably on the top five of all of these films for many lists. And each time I watch it, I just can't get into it for whatever reason i don't know am i bored the the kids do annoy me with their like screeching just it seems like it's too much so maybe i should attempt to watch the japanese version of it rather than the english and and see if that changes but uh i don't know it just seems like and this is hypocritical but it seems like nothing happens (laughs) and i'm just following (laughs) these people now i enjoy i do enjoy the creatures which i i think is a lot of fun and i think I've, I I did read an article about sort of the death or the kind of the aura of death is is or the threat of it is is all around this film and I thought oh that's an interesting take but you mentioned Pan's Labyrinth Labyrinth and as you were speaking I was actually thinking about that because there are many times where you where it's called into question whether this is just the the daughters seeing this because do the do the parents see this at all. The adults things kind of are explained of what's actually happening afterwards, like the one does it may gets trapped in like a little thing and kind of in a a burrow of some sort. And then later on, it's just like she's just pulled out of it. But at the very end, similar to Pan's Labyrinth, which I like that film. I know Harry doesn't care for that film as much. (laughs) It's called into question of, oh, actually, these things might be there because at the hospital, the mother actually says, I swear I saw, you know, the daughters with like something in the tree. So I do like that aspect of it, but yeah, it's just not, it's not my favorite. I don't know. Maybe it is too childlike, which is sad. Like I don't want to be past the point where I can't enjoy the childlike ones, but besides the the creatures. Yeah. I think it's just those, those two girls. I don't know. I don't know. So I guess I should try one more time and and try the Japanese and see if maybe I can get past it. Well, is this movie that you would like recommend to people because it is so popular that maybe it would just sort of have a 
a higher success rate than some others? Yeah, I so the Sawyers are kind of the 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 people that I would bring over these films. And unfortunately, not all of them are on board with the anime. So they make fun of it. So we have watched Kiki and Porco. I don't know if we've done Howl, but Spirited Away happens to be the, the youngest daughter's favorite. So that was a success. And she owns it now. So that's like their one anime film that they have on their shelf. And at one point I was over and someone made a request of watching Totoro because he had heard it was Jacob. He had heard that it was well regarded. And so I was like, okay, well, we'll, we'll put on the Totoro. So I don't know that I would. Well, I guess if it's something to like ease somebody in because Akira certainly would not be how I would ease somebody (laughs) in. And that's coming from someone who's seen that film, but it might be an easy, easier one to say like hey you know people regard this highly without me coloring it like i wouldn't say hey this is great but i don't really care for it i would never do that so i would potentially yes i would recommend it Mm, and then you'd have to sit through it again i would yes so i had to do it i mean i couldn't say no to them i was like okay and then i was like well i'm in for it now Uh, and then you watched it again with another child in this case me i know and you enjoyed it and you like really loved that scene of the argument and everything yeah that that one that was pretty crazy because she tells her to stay she's like i gotta go run and tell father wasn't it or whatever she's like stay Mm -hmm. here and then she doesn't she gets lost and it's a whole thing but yeah yeah and i I guess they're acting their ages so right which i again i was just kind of really surprised by i mean in that scene it's it's almost comedic the way it's timed because you know they have this argument which just again feels very real and then the older daughter runs off and the younger daughter is with this kid this boy who's been sort of following them around and he's like okay may like let's uh let's get out of here and she just bursts out into tears and it's like it's just so sudden um and kind of funny but then it's like uh i don't know it just for whatever reason like this sort of very very light, very fantastical movie is undercut with a very uh, genuine humanity that kind of um, manifests in uh, surprising ways, but it's always, I, I just really appreciate that specific juxtaposition, which I, I think is kind of, it's difficult to pull off. And it's just so interesting that this, I don't know, it, it's just a weird movie, I think, because if you're going to commit yourself as a filmmaker to a fantasy movie, you would think that you would sort of try to make Princess Mononoke every time. Uh, obviously, that's a lot harder, but like to spend two, three years in, you know, painstaking uh, production on something that does feel like in a way kind of like a casual experience, but that does have these sort of um, surprising uh, moments of drama. Like, I don't know. It's just, there's just, I guess there's just something about the sort of laid back nature, the relaxing vibes of uh, Totoro and a lot of these movies that I do appreciate um, that will only continue into my number three, as we will talk about at some point. But um, yeah, I don't know. That's, it's a difficult point for me to articulate, but hopefully I got maybe the gist of it out. Yeah, no, I think you did. Anything Thanks. else on Totoro? I don't know what those little guys are, like the little things that sit on his head, but I think I like those even better than Totoro. The I just little, think those guys are really cute. Yeah, those little guys. Yes. It, he looks like, um, like there was that weird Pikachu thing <clears throat> that went around where he was like wearing a Pikachu costume, but it was like something else. Like he looks kind of oh, like that. Uh, yeah. 
I, I don't. Yeah, know it's all about the creatures. The creatures in in the Ghibli are are certainly something that warms my heart. And if I can become attached to them, which often I am, then I think that's the the way to my heart. So the relationships, and then the the creatures that are around, and kind of the <laughs> familiars, as I I think I would style them with some of the characters that just have these animals that are with them that are not mere animals or not pack animals or not just they like act as as something more to them mm, okay well my number four this supplanted whisper of the heart because i think maybe <sighs> originally whisper of the heart would have been on my top five list had you asked me a couple years ago but honestly oh, it's gotta be oh look at that that's awkward how it's got that watermark no. on it oh well but it is from up on poppy hill Mm -hmm. Umi, over here, come see this What is it? Oh, just an article about you It must be about you Who else raises flags every morning? Fair girl, why do you send your thoughts to the sky? The wind carries them aloft to mingle with the crows Trimmed with blue, your flags fly again today Oh, looks like someone's getting your messages Mm -hmm. Nobuko, over here Thanks for waiting. Curry. It's not difficult. You should try making your own sometime. It'll never happen. I don't have the time. Great. Now what? Japanese. It is Kokuriko Zakakara, and it is 2011, a drama, as they say, directed by Goro Miyazaki and scripted by Hayao Miyazaki and Keiko Niwa. It is set in 1963. Atop a hill overlooking a seaside port sits a boarding house named Kokuakot Manor. Since the building is run by her family, Umi Matsuzaki carries out many of the duties involved in managing the small establishment, such as preparing meals for her fellow boarders. When she isn't at home, she's a student at the local high school, one that is currently dealing with a small crisis. (laughs) In anticipation of the upcoming Olympic Games, a beloved old clubhouse is set to be demolished to make way for a modern building. As a result, a large part of the student body has banded together, working tirelessly to prevent this from happening. Umi finds herself helping the newspaper club to spread information about this cause, where she befriends Shun Kazama, whom she gradually begins to fall in love with. And I should say that it is mutual. But Shun (laughs) is an orphan who doesn't know much about his origins. And when the two begin searching for clues to the boy's past, they discover that they may have a lot more in common than either of them could have thought. 
i.e. they might be half-siblings. <laughs> Which, yeah, puts a stop to that relationship real quick. <laughs> oh, what to say about this? So this was one of the films that I saw. I think I was probably at Target and I saw that it was maybe G-Kids or, you know, Ghibli. It was G-Kids. And, of course, Ghibli as well. And I'm like, I'm gonna take a gonna take a chance on this, and went home and watched it, and was just oh, I was just astounded by it. I really love it. I think primarily because of the romanticism. I'm not gonna lie, it's about <laughs> it's all about that. But the oh, the relationships between fathers and their children, which I think often is neglected. I mean, I say that having just talked about Totoro, which was certainly mostly, I think, about fathers and daughters. But here, you know, what is that relationship like? What is it like when you don't know who your parent is, when you've lost your parent? So Umi, her father was killed in an accident on sea and or out at sea. And then Shun doesn't know necessarily, you know, who his father is. He's adopted. He doesn't know too much. So that I think that's really interesting. Umi is... I think more mature than her age asks for just in how much, because her mother is off doing other things. So she is almost like the head of the household and has so many responsibilities and of course school and everything. And then she becomes similar to Theo in Porco, you know, she becomes this like model female that everyone kind of bows down to over at the, at that house and just really gets the the guys into gear and doesn't take any gruff. Remember that one guy <laughs> from the philosopher club that's like, come into my hut. <laughs> so there's some like really wacky things. There are some classic coming of age awkwardness between male and female and then the moment where he shun discovers that ugh, they might be half sibling like they might share the same father and seeing the, the the separation between the two or really how he is putting distance between the two and acting a bit colder and then they have that frank discussion and everything. And it's just really, I'm so engaged in it that it's, it's, I'm like following along and feeling the feelings that, that they do and, and all of that conflict in there. And then there's that one beautiful moment where they had gone, I, I don't know if it was Tokyo or not, oh, to meet with the corporate people behind basically to try to say, don't, don't destroy our building. And then they had that <laughs> frank discussion. And then she says, you know, I love you. And he says that as well, but it's like, but you know, that's the last time that we can say that. And they like hold hands and everything. You're like, wow, this is really heart wrenching because they're really putting <laughs> it on the line. You see how much, so it's not, it's like a really serious, I mean, it's dramatic. Like how dramatic is that? You would probably see that on a soap opera or whatever, but I think it's dealt with so deftly. I think that it's both sweet and heartbreaking and I take it seriously. I don't feel like, oh, I'm rolling my eyes at this whole thing. You're like, really, I'm really invested in this particular relationship. And, you know, spoilers at the end, everything is sort of cleared up. So I'm hoping that, you know, if there were from up on Poppy Hill part two, which there's not going to be, that <laughs> they would be together in the future. But I also just really like Umi. So again, it's just another example of a strong and really well-written female character. And to a certain extent, I think Miyazaki, well, in this case, it's Goro, has maybe an archetype for some of their female characters because they do take on, I think, more responsibility than 
is necessary for, you know, <laughs> she's 16 or 17 and, and she's basically the, the leader of this household. And without her, things would really be awry. So you have these really mature women for their age. And I don't think that's anti-feminist at all because you, you know, the feminist me would be like, why is she in charge of housekeeping? <laughs> but it's that she's like in charge of a business and she's also the host with all of these guests. So that's like a really big responsibility. So I also just like her as a, um, as a character and how they meet is really funny because <laughs> Shun jumps off of the building. There's like this huge <laughs> banner of like, save this building. Then she rushes over for whatever reason because he's in this pool of water and they like shake hands and we're like whoa (laughs) (laughs) which is a lot of fun just you know teenagers do do that you know if if there's any like male female interaction we're just like oh what's happening here but i think there's a lot going on here i think primarily i love the romance of it but i think there's a lot of depth to this film as well and i i enjoyed it I, I thank God that this movie exists because we had previously suffered through Goro's previous two <laughs> or maybe later efforts, uh, Tales from Earthsea and Earwig and the Witch. And we we went deep on Earwig and the Witch because, which will not be appearing later, so I suppose we can talk about it briefly now. Yeah. Probably the worst Ghibli movie. I think we might even agree on that, um, surprisingly. But yeah. we <laughs> ended up reading the book by Diane Wynne-Jones, who's also the author of Howl's Moving Castle. And the book is just as bad as the movie. Like, it's just a nothing story. So Goro, um, who has this really kind of complicated reputation as the son of Hayao Miyazaki, who, you know, broke out with Tales of Earth Sea, which was very bad. Um, and then Earwig and the Witch Later, which was very, very bad. But it's honestly, I mean, it's a, it's a straight adaptation. Like, the only thing he added was the weird rock band element, which didn't <laughs> add or subtract anything. Um, yeah. So you're really going to blame the source material. And I think in this case, like, being written, co-written by Hayao Miyazaki, um, like, you you see that he is a competent director. Um, and I really, really like the way that, uh, as you mentioned, the characters just, they feel real um, in that way. That is consistent, I think, with some of the Ghibli movies, like Only Yesterday, Whisper the Heart, and honestly, Ocean Waves. Um, there's no magic in this one. It's just, it is a, a kind of, um, a, it's just a, a romance uh, story, and that's really nice. I think I may have frustrated you maybe the most with this one, um, although I'll, I will suss that out, um, because I I think for me... I, it only really came together at the very end when you, it sort of revealed like what this story has been about, which is kind of the previous generation. And so it's like this almost like a mystery box story that is revealed at the very end. And it's very nice. I was, I was really moved by that, but what you describe wasn't really my experience with the movie, because I do like that central conflict of two people who cannot be together because they're actually related. Uh Oh, but most of the movie seemed to be taken up by the whole like fraternity club part of this school, which I just found completely uninteresting. Um, I mean, essentially there's this, I don't know if you've seen Love, Victor, which was the TV spinoff of Love, Simon. No, I haven't. So it opens, well, it sort of opens. Anyway, Victor is introduced to the new high school by this like nerd weird friend who opens the doors to the high school and he like spins around and he's like, welcome to, you know, Creekwood High. And I'm like, that, like, that is so TV and like, so beyond my experience where, you know, I was one of these kids who like really couldn't stand school growing up. Like I was just so anti-school. And so like the thing that, that offended me the most about school tended to be that sort of like aspect of like the culture. Like I can't, like, it is so beyond my comprehension why anybody would like be involved in a club. And so when you sort of, 
bring that into the fore or whatever, like uh, with a essentially like a frat house where all these guys are doing like awesome things, like having a, a weird philosophy hut or like doing science experiments or like running a journal. I just, I just thought that was like insufferable. Um, and it's only, it's a small part of the narrative, but it takes up, I think a lot of screen time. And for me, that was ruinous, honestly. This is why I'm Harry sorry. I can't be true true friends <laughs> because of this. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. I enjoyed that part. There's a whole cast of characters. It's just a clubhouse with all the clubs stacked on top of each other. I just hate guys so much, especially teenage boys. And like, I don't, I don't care about their worlds or anything. I mean, I, yeah, I really like the main character though. The and even the two central uh, leads who, who do seem wise beyond their years, and the journey that they go on is um, is pretty remarkable. Um, so it's it is it is a good movie, and it's a good movie in the catalog because it does redeem Goro Miyazaki, oh, yeah. who is kind of the ultimate underdog. I think. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess, folks, you need to decide. Which person you support? So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but to see I, or not to see? This one, I mean, this one did really well. So I think most people are going to be Team Stella on this one. I hope so. We'll see. Yeah. Feedback <laughs> requested. So any uh, anything else on from up on Poppy Hill? No, I think that's it. I could, I just would gush about it. So. And I don't want to hear it. I know you don't. That's why I will <laughs> be you. considerate of my guests. Thank you. <laughs> like <laughs> Umi would. <laughs> exactly yep. bearing the weight of the world uh well, well it is interesting that this replaces was for the heart because there is some crossover there where um, yeah you have that daughter who definitely has a lot of uh, responsibilities um and then for me of course my number three is whisper the heart <laughs> excuse me is this shizuku's classroom hey amasawa what's up i'm looking for shizuku is she in here shizuku yeah she's here Hey, Shizuku, you got a visitor. It's a guy. Seiji, she's right over there. <laughs> Hi, Seiji. Shizuku, can we talk for a minute? Uh, sure. Which was directed by a fella named Yoshifumi Kondo. Um, his only feature film, he had been working as, as an assistant animator on Ghibli. We discussed this actually on a recent Q&A podcast or the recent Q&A podcast where Whisper of the Heart made my top 10 of the you know things that I saw that Can year. I can hardly believe story. it. The only uh, Ghibli movie to make it. But it's uh, I was really surprised because this is another one where it's yet another story that kind of starts in a high school and it's about these kids or middle school, I think in this case, and there's like a cat involved and uh, music. And it's just like on, on paper, it really doesn't sound like it would be my cup of tea. <laughs> um, and anyway, that paper reads from again, my anime list, Shizuku Tsukishima. That's gotta be one of the harder names we've come across. She's an energetic 14 year old girl who enjoys reading and writing poetry in her free time. Glancing at the checkout cards of her books one evening, she notices that her library books are frequently checked out by a boy named Seiji Amasawa. Curiosity strikes Shizuku, and she decides to search for the boy who shares her love of literature. Meeting a peculiar cat on the train... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Meeting a peculiar cat on the train, Shizuku follows the animal and is eventually led 
to a quaint antique shop where she learns about a cat statuette known as the Baron. Taking an interest in the shop, she surprisingly finds Seiji, and the two quickly befriend one another. Shizuku learns while acquainting herself with Seiji that he has a dream that he would like to fulfill, causing her dismay as she remains uncertain of her future and has yet to recognize her talents. However, as her relationship with Seiji grows, Shizuku becomes determined to work toward a goal guided by the whispers of her heart and inspiration from the Baron. She resolves to carve out her own potential and dreams. You know, plot-wise, I, I don't know why this movie uh, stuck out to me as much as it did. It starts with a very interesting musical motif, which is the American song Country Roads. And I don't know how that plays in the dub, but uh, you know, it was just... I. I think they might've been doing like Japanese lyrics with the, uh, the instrumental. So that was just kind of a, a weird surprise, but there's a lot about this movie that is weird. First of all, you have this element of the Baron, which is one of the few or not few, but one of the most striking Ghibli motifs because they made a whole spinoff movie that is kind of a sequel called the cat returned, which is basically if the Baron, or it's like the a story of the Baron as a character. And that is much more of a fantasy film. Plot structure wise, it's just kind of all over the place. It feels like two different movies slapped together. Um, but I think in that structure, there is this kind of central romantic conceit of the world that you know and then the world that is to be discovered that feels apart from the familiar, that this girl really goes on a journey and, you know, discovers this world that is hidden and that sort of um, has this central romantic emotional pull. But for me, what I think what I really liked about it was just that love triangle that occupies the first part of the movie that quickly becomes a love sextahedron. Um, <laughs> it was just, there was just something about the ways that characters kind of um, almost struggled against each other and struggled against their own feelings and, you know, had to kind of try to express these, these emotions that they had without disrupting the delicate, you know, political balance of, of middle school. Because again, as you, uh, as you referenced, this is one of those movies where, the school children are like, you know, when the boy comes in saying, hey, is uh, is Shizuku here? Everybody goes, ooh. <laughs> I think we really enjoyed that part. Um, so yeah, Whisper of the Heart, it's, it's, it's sad to look back on because it is the only film that this guy made before his, uh, his premature death. I think he must have been 40 or 50. It's, it's I don't know, it's just, it's just really nice. It has a very... Um, incisive almost aching humanity to it that's just really uh really enjoyable and it really tugs at your heartstrings you have she is potentially an irresponsible (laughs) person i remember (laughs) she doesn't do as as well in the the chores department or you know the responsibilities that her parents give her but you Mm. start to see her in the course of this film you see as she grows up and specifically because she understands i think what her passion is and what she wants to be and become which is a writer and i think her older sister serves as a nice contrast to her like juxtaposition of you know what is that like that adulthood because she ends up moving out and and goes off and has a profession so you can kind of see the different phases of everything and then she bonds with her her love interest because they both are passionate about these things and so what does it mean to pursue those dreams and then how can we be together while also pursuing those dreams which i thought was really powerful as well because he wants to be the best violin 
crafter as he can be, but he also wants to be with her. And that love confession, I think, is is a, a great confession. And I always love, you know, easy way to my heart besides the little the little animals <laughs> is the little blushing <laughs> that anime <laughs> characters get on their cheeks. I very much enjoy that. But yeah, this is I, I enjoyed this film. Yeah, I, I, there's a strange, um, well, not strange, but there it feels very full in a way. Like you, you get a sense for the world um, that is not always the case with Ghibli movies, but when it does happen, it's really nice. There's just a, a real lived-in feeling to the library and to the school, and especially her home life, because, yeah, she has this sister, older sister, who is the only responsible person um, in her family because her parents are almost bohemian. Like, they just sort of <laughs> lay around and talk about her. Very interesting. Uh, and this was, as as you as you mentioned at the top, one of your possible honorable mentions. So if you hadn't already discussed it, like, why... Why would you, what, what draws you uh, to this movie? <laughs> what draws me to it? Probably the shipping and the school <laughs> setting. I mean, slice of life is my favorite genre in mm. anime when I'm, you know, searching out series to watch. And then I also like the school settings of things. I don't know if that's because of being a teacher, maybe so I can relate more to mm. it because I see these kids all the time. And yeah, with just the the lead characters being in middle school or, or junior high or high school, I just feel like I really understand, you know, how difficult it is for them because I, I witnessed it for 10 years and probably will soon again. Um, <laughs> and just, yeah, the fanciful nature of it, because there are some fantasy elements, but it's still grounded. So the Baron, of course, the the cat that she finds, Moon, who has kind of crosses over in other films, we feel like, without yeah. a, a really being outwardly stated. Does this cat know what's going on? What's going, you know, what's happening? And then using the Baron as an inspiration for her story. So yeah, I enjoy it. And yeah, having awkward love quadrangles or whatever it is, is is a lot of fun. But if that song went on for more than it did, I think I would have gotten annoyed because it is repeatedly used yes. in the English. They're, they're singing, but it's not the same. I mean, it says country roads, but then they sort of, and Brittany Snow is the, the lead oh. here, but yeah, they, they use different lyrics, which is interesting. Oh, do you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) Folks, that's number two. But anyways, yes, I I would say that's primarily what it is. But in this time that I was watching it with you, I think I started to see more about having passions and dreams and being on the cusp of adulthood or trying to find what you want to do, which, which speaks to me as an educator because students now more or less i would say and especially because of parental pressures are all about success and what does that look mm. like you know you know i want to get all a so i can get into a good college so i can get a good paying job etc and there's like a lack of passion there like yes strive for the best you can be but should you also be looking for something that you're passionate about um which is something that i'm like really <laughs> thinking about now because the current job that I'm at, I really do not like, and I just need to endure, <laughs> endure for, you know, grad school period. But I'm just like, gosh, how, how could you be, I'm just thinking about other people who are at jobs that they don't like, how do you do that? Because it's just so wearing, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally. And so to really see that, I think in animated form, you know, someone seeking out their passion, whether it 
that's going to give them money or not, at least they're pursuing it, I think was really powerful this time around. Yeah, I, re- I responded to that too. And I think I am privileged to have parents who are exceptions to that because they are very supportive of my ludicrous dreams, which is perhaps <laughs> why I end up back here spending all my money on massive manga. Um, <laughs> so maybe it doesn't always work out, but we'll see. Yeah, so The Whisper of the Heart, it's just, um, it's it's a rare uh, entry in the catalog, despite having a lot of thematic crossover with other movies like uh, Only Yesterday, which I thought I was really going to like. Um, and even The Wind Rises to an extent, um, just in the ways that, I don't know, I, I can't really back that up, but maybe we'll talk that, talk about that at some point. Um, and Whisper of the Heart does also contain a musical sequence that is not Country Roads, that is really quite beautiful. And I think worth uh, worth admission just just for that one sequence. And you'll know it when it comes. Um, so yeah, just a, a really nice, again, sense of humanity uh, to this one and very passionate characters, which is nice. Absolutely. Okay. Boop. <laughs> My number three is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Nice. It's the princess. The princess. She's okay. Listen now. You will be addressed by Her Highness Kushana, commander of the Tolmikian army. Villagers, we have come to your land in the name of peace. Our goal is to unify the kingdoms surrounding Tolmikia and build a world of prosperity. You now live at the edge of the jungle. On the verge of extinction, follow us and join our enterprise. We shall put the toxic jungle to the torch and resurrect this land together. Burn the toxic jungle? With what? Is that possible? I have in my possession mankind's greatest tool, the awesome force which once allowed human beings to rule the earth. I guarantee that those who join me will live without fear of the insects or the jungle's poisons ever again. Stop! Stop, I say! You must not touch the toxic jungle. What are you babbling about, woman? Guards, take her away. No, let her speak. Since the origin of the toxic jungle, a thousand years ago, people tried time and again to burn it. But time and again, their attempts did nothing but enrage the Om, and swarms of them spilled from the jungle and stampeded across the lands. They toppled cities, destroyed kingdoms, and killed thousands. The Om could not be stopped. Such rage did they feel. The Om fought till they died of starvation. Then spores took root in their corpses. And the land soon became part of the toxic jungle. That's why you do not interfere with it. Silence, you old hag. We will have none of your raving. Oh, you won't, will you? How will you shut me up? Will you kill me, too? Ah, silence, I said. Go ahead and kill me. It'll be easier for you to kill an old blind woman than it was for you to murder our King Jill. King Jill? What? He was bedridden. You murdered you. You pay for that. He won't let you get away with this. No mercy for the insolent. Quiet, everyone, please. I need everybody to listen to me. I can't bear to have anyone else die. I beg of you. Princess. 
Oh, Baba, please understand. We need to do as the Tolmikians say. So uh, this is yes. Well, since this is also on my list, should I, I just should we just go into it now? Or I guess you could not say much. Okay. Well, do you want to? I mean, do that? it's the one. I mean, I'm going to talk about it next anyway, so we might as well just we'll just talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so I guess Harry has spoiled that <laughs> his. His number two is also Nausicaa. So for once we agree, and by, I mean that, folks, because that is something that I've learned is that he and I do not agree on nearly anything. So anyways, just to get that out there. But Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. Nausicaa, what are you doing here? This chamber is filled with toxic plants. I collected the spores and grew them down here myself. Don't worry, the plants aren't poisonous. They're not poisonous? It's true, the air is pure in here. But I know these plants from the jungle. These are some of the most lethal. I irrigated this chamber using water drawn from deep underground by the castle windmill. I used soil drawn from there as well. I found that with clean water and soil, the plants from the toxic jungle aren't poisonous. All the poison is in the soil. Even the topsoil in our valley is polluted. But I don't understand who could have polluted the entire earth. You discovered this all on your own? Yes. I was hoping to find a cure for father's illness. But... It's too late now. I'm shutting down. I've already cut off the water. Soon these plants will wither and die. Nausicaa. I'm afraid of myself, Lord Yupa. I had no idea that my rage could drive me to kill. 1984 Japanese anime written and directed by Miyazaki based on his 1982 manga, which Harry has not read. <laughs> Just want to say. I, um, yeah. And the Japanese is Kaze no Tani no Naoshika. A millennium has passed since the catastrophic nuclear war named the Seven Days of Fire, which destroyed nearly all life on Earth. Humanity now lives in a constant struggle against the treacherous jungle that has evolved in response to the destruction caused by mankind. Filled with poisonous spores, hashtag Last of Us, and enormous, <laughs> and enormous insects, the jungle spreads rapidly across the Earth and threatens to swallow the remnants of the human race. Away from the jungle exists a peaceful farming kingdom known as the Valley of the Wind, whose placement by the sea frees it from the spread of the jungle's deadly toxins. The valley's charismatic young princess Nausicaa finds her tranquil kingdom disturbed when an airship from the kingdom of the Tolmikia crashes violently in the valley. After Nausicaa and the citizens of the valley find a sinister pulsating object in the wreckage, the valley is suddenly invaded by the Tolmikian military, who intend to revive a dangerous weapon from the Seven Days of Fire. Now Nausicaa must fight to stop the Tomikians from plunging the earth into a cataclysm which humanity could never survive, while also protecting the valley from the encroaching forces of the toxic jungle. And I have to say, in that synopsis, ohms are not mentioned, which I think after the break, Ooh. I have to get my ohm. I forgot. I should have put yes. my ohm back here showing it off. <laughs> but this is, oh, and ohms are the creatures that you see on that poster there. and. 
we find out that Nausicaa has a history with Ohms um, and she, she does care for them. She knows what angers them. She tries to calm them and not only destroying the jungle, but the Tomikian leader wants to use this weapon of mass destruction to kill all the Ohms as well. And they're all coming for it. Golly. So this is one of those films that I cannot watch repeatedly because mm. it is just it has a weight it has a weight to it and so whenever i watch it i kind of have to sit with what i've seen <laughs> you know it's not like a jovial film that i'm like yay look at how cute that is because there's some heavy stuff that's going on it, it's definitely anti-war anti-weapon mass destruction pro-environment and uh yeah where do we even begin? I mean, luckily <laughs> you, you love this as much as I guess you love it more than I do, but Nausicaa is just such a compelling <laughs> main character for me and a female uh, character. I love her heart, I guess, to put it quite simply, just how she is living in this world. That's really tough to live in, but she's also trying to protect it, even though the world itself is, is trying to inadvertently kill the humans. And she is, I would say similar to an ohm. She has that one really brutal moment after her father is killed and she mm-hmm. unleashes hellish fury on everyone and it's like the ohms when they go red and then of course she has to to calm down and and i think it's that moment she realizes like oh man what had i become at that moment and i think there's a a big shift after that um and then she becomes a hostage and um is then carried away and she's got to figure out what to do to save everyone while that, you know, there are all these people in tow. There is a man here in this that could be a potential love interest, but just like Mononoke, I'm like, pish posh. I don't care about you. I just care about (laughs) Nausicaa. But she ends up, what's really interesting is there's this prophecy of this prince in blue that's, you know, going to save them. And everyone, you know, is looking who's this prince, who's this prince. And as is, you know, I guess Ghibli and Miyazaki subverts what you would expect that it would be a man. And it happened. It's, it's Nausicaa. I mean, you kind of think like it should have been Nausicaa all along. How could people <laughs> even believe for an instant that it was somebody else, but she sacrifices herself. She saves this little baby Ohm. And then that doesn't turn the Ohms around. She ends up like throwing her body in there. And she's the horrifying scene of her and the baby Ohm just like flying up into the air. And then it looks like she's dead. But then the Ohm gather around her and um, I guess give their life force to her and, and, and heal her. But I love the fact that that isn't a surprise because it's almost like within her because you see a flashback. There's this song that kind of plays a lot, which I think I said at one point, like this song could be annoying if it went on, you know, multiple <laughs> times. La, 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 la. You know, if that happened more than it did, I think I would have been like, OK, enough with that. But you see as a child how she was protecting a small baby ohm and these people came and was like, you don't, that's dangerous, don't do that. So it's just from the very beginning that it's seeded uh, almost in her DNA how how caring she is and just such a great leader. I think motivate character motivations besides Nausicaa, <laughs> uh, something that we had to work out a bit, especially the legless, armless wonder, as I call her. I can't yeah. remember her name because she has a, a change of heart, but then her comrade doesn't really... But there's clearly a war between uh, these two groups that are going on. There was a princess that was stolen, and then the Valley of the Wind kind of gets caught up in the middle, unfortunately. But 
Um, yeah, just really powerful. And some of these themes that we do see in Mononoke, I think, are really more successful here with this anti-war and pro-environmentalist messages. But I I guess I'll I'll say my that was my piece. So now I will <laughs> give you I'll give you the floor since it was your number two. Yes, I, I apologize for having hijacked the, the No, that's planning. okay. I wondered when I knew yours, I was like, oh, what's this gonna do? Because I know Nasica's on my list. How are we gonna do it? But here we are. <laughs> here we are, unfortunately. I mean, how could it not be Nasica? I mean, this is such a a beloved movie for a lot of people because it was so early on. Um, and looking at it in the greater context of Studio Ghibli, it's interesting because aside from Princess Mononoke and the directly following Castle in the Sky, they would never really make a movie like this again. Mm. This is an outright, like, big adventure fantasy world. And there's a lot of, like, those classical uh, world building elements. Uh, it, it feels more like a science fiction or a fantasy movie than, like, a what became a sort of Ghibli approach. And I think that they maybe learned a lot about storytelling and how to you know make a film with this movie and so you get a lot of refinement later on aesthetically i think with princess mononoke and then even just how you do an adventure story like an arietti where it's just you know smaller scale but the same sort of uh emotions and suspense and everything like that and maybe it just feels a bit more confident and certainly uh, the storytelling is more concise now it's because it's been all over the place because it's it's an adaptation of again an enormous manga that is um, that goes some some strange places, um, but I mean it's just such a such a big story and such a big world now condensed into a roughly two hour um, movie, and I, I think it's pretty successful despite how that might sound. Yeah, anchored by this incredible character who uh, feels as sort of rounded as the world itself because she does have that incredible scene of violence early on, but uh, her character is. Uh, not introduced because she's introduced in that scene where she's uh, warding off the Ohm attack. One of the uh, great scenes is when she's introduced to this little creature, this sort of fox squirrel or something, uh, which you also see in Castle in the Sky. You get a sense that she is sort of one with nature because it's it starts to run around her and bites her finger and she just sort of uh, holds there until it realizes that she's not a threat. Um, and that's just like a, a really small, really nice moment. Um, and then she runs over to the, the chocobos and they lick her face with their giant gross tongues. So yeah, again, like Nausicaa, Castle in the Sky, very influential on uh, video games especially. And, and I think Japanese pop culture in general, introducing a lot of things that would surface later in things like Final Fantasy and probably Dragon Quest. So very, very uh, important movie, very entertaining and yeah, that that uh, that central message uh, I, I think works better here than it does in Mononoke, which was somewhat incoherent. Uh, and in this case, like it's just it's this big political struggle, and there's war, and there's a god uh, that actually shows up <laughs> and starts blasting things with lasers. So it, it goes some places, and in in retrospect, feels pretty unusual in the in the overall Ghibli canon, despite being pre-Ghibli and sort of the uh, the foundation. Um, and I guess uh, shout out to uh, to our friend Donovan. This is where Hideakiano got his start um, animating the God Warrior sequence, um, and that would become surprisingly another icon for Ghibli. There was a uh, live action thing, short film produced, I think in 20, 2014, maybe probably by Shinji Higuchi, which was God Warrior attacks Tokyo, and it was one of these uh, God Warrior characters from Nausicaa invading. Tokyo and it looks like Shin Godzilla, but um, Hideaki Anno is the guy who eventually created 
uh, Evangelion and Studio Gainax. And uh, this is where he got his start. And uh, if you end up talking about The Wind Rises, he is the voice of the main character in the original Japanese language. That's my, my nerd facts. Thank you, Mr. Nerd. <laughs> I will say that even though there's there's a haze on the animation, like it's not as clean or clear as we would expect now in 2021, mm-hmm. I think that this ages really well. Like I would not want them yeah. to redo it and have the clean. I, I think that haze is almost representative of like the toxic fog that's around there. Mm. Do you feel like it ages well, or would you prefer to have if, you know, just like a clearer, brighter tones that they would use? For- I, I I wouldn't object to seeing a new and updated version. I know that that is sort of a, a heresy. I think that there is a certain, uh, like with video games, I think, you know, the best looking video games are the ones that have a really strong art style. So it's not necessarily about graphics because when the new generation comes in, the last generation suddenly looks awful and, and you, you're amazed by how your eyes were tricked. But games like, uh, you know, Metroid Prime or some of the Metal Gear Solid, Halo 3, Resident Evil 5, these games still look absolutely incredible. And there is just a certain, I don't know, I don't want to say competence, but uh, a certain level of art, art artistry behind it. In a Nausicaa, like it is just very well designed, very well thought out, the way that uh, you can sort of differentiate between the different cultures. And so I think that that's, that's why it's still, or that's part of why it still holds up. Um, maybe I would like to see that rendered with some digital assistance and how cool could it be? Because a lot of it is kind of um, deserty and barren, uh, in keeping with the plot, which is post-apocalyptic. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, this, this movie has uh, one of those deep frames that I was talking about, especially in the beginning where you enter into this uh this forest and you have these um sky creatures just sort of floating by and it's just it, it just creates a very interesting uh honestly indelible image any other thoughts on nausicaa <laughs> hmm. i mean this one is a a bonafide classic and i think it's it's uh easily recommended even for you know non-anime fans i think it's an essential uh science fiction movie um so this is a yeah a easy easy recommendation I, that's interesting, whether I would recommend this to somebody or not. I think it would, I would need to know them and their proclivities Mm. because I don't know if I would necessarily, if they were a first time anime watcher, if I would go for this right away. What about Donovan? Oh yes. I think he should. Okay. Yeah. So that was an easy one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So unfortunately we did. Harry's number two because it was connected with my number three. So now we are back to me again. And it is my number two. Boop. Hal's Moving Castle. Sophie? It all seems so familiar, yet I know I've never been here before. I feel so at home. Come with me. Okay. Look there. What a cute cottage. That was my secret hideaway. I spent a lot of time here by myself when I was young. You were alone? My uncle, who was a wizard, gave me this place as my private study. And now you can come here whenever you like. 
What's the matter? It's... You're scaring me. I have this weird feeling that you're going to leave. How? Tell me what's going on. Please. I don't care if you're a monster. I'm just setting things up so that all of you can live a comfortable life, Sophie. With all the flowers you've got in this valley, you could easily open up a flower shop. Right? I'm sure you'd be good at it. So you are going away. Please, Hal, I know I can be of help to you. Even though I'm not pretty, all I'm good at is cleaning. Sophie! Sophie, you're beautiful! Well, the nice thing about being old is you've got nothing much to lose. Yes, a beloved. So this in Japanese is Haru no Ugoku Shiro. 2004 fantasy written and directed by Miyazaki. And the film is loosely based on the 1986 novel of the same name by British author Diana Wynne-Jones. And while I did not like Earwig, I will say that I did. I have read this and I did enjoy it. But there are some some differences there. And we've got some great stars. Christian Bale is Howell. Emily Mortimer is one of the Sophies. But uh, this film is set in a fictional kingdom where both magic and early 20th century technology are prevalent against the background of a war with another kingdom. Influenced by Miyazaki's opposition to the United States invasion of Iraq in 2003, the film contains, again, some strong anti-war themes. Miyazaki stated that he, quote, had a great deal of rage, end quote, about the Iraq war, which led him to make a film which he felt would be poorly received. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? (laughs) In the United States. It also explores the theme of old age, depicting age positively as something which grants the protagonist freedom. The film contains feminist elements as well and carries messages about the value of compassion. In 2013, Miyazaki said that Howl's Moving Castle was his favorite creation, explaining, I wanted to convey the message that life is worth living, and I don't think that's changed. The film is thematically significantly different from the novel. While the novel focuses on challenging class and gender norms, the film focuses on love, personal loyalty, and the destructive effects of war. And it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature at the 78th Academy Awards, but lost to Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit in 2006, which I do recommend if you like Wallace and Gromit. And here is the plot. That jumbled piece of architecture, that cacophony of hissing steam and creaking joints with smoke billowing from it as it moves on its own. That castle is, this is really well written. That (laughs) castle is, I didn't write it. That castle is home to the magnificent wizard Howell, infamous for both his magical prowess and for being a womanizer, or so the rumor goes, in Sophie Hatter's small town. Sophie, as the plain daughter of a hat maker, does not expect much from her future and is content with working hard in the shop. However, Sophie's simple life takes a turn for the exciting when she is ensnared in a disturbing situation and the mysterious wizard appears to rescue her. Unfortunately, this encounter, brief as it may be, spurs the vain and vengeful Witch of the Waste in a fit of jealousy caused by a past discord with Howell to put a curse on the maiden, turning her into an old woman. In an endeavor to return to normal, Sophie must accompany Howell and a myriad of eccentric companions, ranging from a powerful fire demon, Calcifer, to a hopping scarecrow in his <laughs> a turnip, uh, in his living castle on a dangerous adventure as a raging war tears their kingdom apart. 
So <laughs> I like this for a myriad of reasons, just like the eccentric characters. Definitely, yes, the eccentric characters that pop up. And once they are all in a room together in the castle, Howell at, actually makes a point of saying like, well, we all have issues because the Witch of the Waste is there and she's aged up because her youth was kind of taken from her or like shows what she actually is. Calcifer, of course, is this fire demon. The turnip has got this issue. So if he's got a curse, Howell's got some issues. So it's really interesting that all these people <laughs> coalesce in one area that, that have a bunch of issues. I love Jane Eyre. I don't know if anyone knows this. I love Jane Eyre. <laughs> one of the reasons why I love Jane Eyre is because I feel like she's so relatable and uh, she may not be beautiful, but I think she's a strong character. And Sophie is certainly someone that I think struggles with her beauty. She believes that she doesn't have any. And even if you look at her sister and her mother, like those two look like twins. And then you've got Sophie, like, where did she come from? But she ends up gaining confidence in becoming this older woman. Like she's very shy and reserved as young Sophie. And then as this older woman, she's, she's wise. She's able to trick people, slight manipulation. She tells people what for. So it's really interesting that she gains this confidence in becoming this older lady, even though this is her curse. And she takes care of this household and she also falls in love with Howell. And how actually he absolutely is a womanizer. He <laughs> at one point <laughs> he uh, she had arranged nicely. She cleans everything up, but she arranges, I guess, his shampoos and things like that. And he uses something accidentally and it turns his lovely blonde locks into orange. And he runs out of the bathroom in a towel and yelling at her, like, what have you done? And at one point says something like, if I can't be beautiful, there's like no point to live. And so that's who Hal is at the beginning. But you start to see him transition into someone who is actually not selfish because he realizes he has something to fight for who is Sophie. So of course there's a love story, which is something that, that draws me to it. I think just the, the fanciful nature of this as well. And the castle is connected to two different towns that you can use a doorknob to, to get to either one. And just the, the growth, I think in Sophie and seeing her stand up to a witch and stand up to the, I guess the main witch wizard in one of the kingdoms and trying to protect Howell and then being the one to save Howell in the end as well. And all is well. She has a similar, like I said about Porco Rosso, there are times where she's sleeping or if she's just fully confident and, and doing things on her own um, without anyone helping her, like near the end when the shop that they're at uh, slash the castle is being bombed out. She's giving orders to everyone. And you see that she de-ages because she's not thinking about, you know, herself. She's got this mission. And I think when she is fully confident, that curse kind of goes away. So I think the, the witch of the waste, this kind of played on her confidence and also her thought that she's not beautiful. There is also another moment where, which I think is a sound clip that I have that how is showing her someplace that's kind of a safe haven for her away from the war. And she's kind of getting nervous of like, what, why is this happening? You know, why are you leaving? And she was young Sophie. And then like, she starts to revert back into old Sophie and saying like, you know, I'm not beautiful. And how's like, what are you talking about? You are so just, yeah, I think 
Jane Eyre in the sense of not realizing your worth or your value and then and then realizing actually what that is and and coming coming into your own whether you are sort of society's standard of beauty or not i, I think that sophie is is such a great character and a lot of, <laughs> there's some wackadoodle things that happen i do have a i actually have a sweater uh with calcifer on the back and there's like um bacon and eggs and everything so whenever i wore that to school they'd be like it is there bacon and eggs on your, your sweater? I'm like, yes, there is. <laughs> but yeah, so my top two, again, I think maybe the first, well, probably the second one that I had seen, and, and this is something that I've shared with other people, but this is potentially something dangerous to share with other people because there are some wacky things going on. But uh, yeah, the anti-war themes is is certainly very strong. But this was one that this was probably one of the first times Harry broke my heart because <laughs> he did not like it as much as I did. That for sure is a winner. So please tell me all about it. This is the one Studio Ghibli movie that I forget exists. Actually, <laughs> that's <laughs> terrible to say. I know. I, oh. ugh, this isn't going to be good. I I. I it seems to me like it's Hayao Miyazaki kind of struggling with an adaptation of a, a specific source. Obviously, he does. He has his own take on Little Mermaid later with Ponyo, and he adapts his own work. But I think in this case, the reason why I have such a hard time remembering it isn't just because it's the one we watched, you know, a year and a half ago. But it, it felt confused uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting, and that's just critics speak for saying I was confused. The film was confused, quote unquote. Um, because I don't know, there was just something about the, the way this magical world unfolded. It didn't feel as, I don't know, I guess clean to me as, as some of these other examples, I couldn't really get a sense for, uh, what was going on. And especially the, the anti-war themes that's, I guess he was very passionate about. I mean, that looking back, I can't really discern a, a coherent message. I mean, I'm sure it's there and it just went over my head, but I was not, I, I guess with, with Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki, there is a, uh, a clarity of storytelling that I'm kind of uh, expecting. And for this one, I was really, uh, I, I never really felt attached to anything. And I think that that's kind of what kept me at bay and then confused pretty much for the whole, the whole runtime. This is how, you know, Harry has no heart. He's not a human <laughs> being. He is a robot folks. Gee, I was going with the uh, dumb defense, not the robot defense, but I guess it could be both. There, I will say that, and even this last time that I watched, because I, I watched my t- number two and number one, I guess on the snow days, um, leading up to this, just so I could have or foment a foment, right? A, a proper thoughts on it. That the main witch of of the kingdom that actually trained Howell. Um, her motives are a bit confusing because she wants Howell a part of that army, but then she ends up like she at the very end, it seems like she had the power to stop that war right away. The war didn't need to be happening, but it, oh. she was like waiting for Howell to almost like receive back his, um, humanity, which happened to be like his soul and his heart, which was Calcifer. Because once that happened and she's like looking through Heen, which is the dog, Heen's eyes, she sees, she's like, okay, well, that didn't turn out as I thought. Give me the, the minister and the king and let's put an end to this war. So that's like, I, I'm confused about her motivations, but everything else I'm not confused about. 
So, but I, I, again, I think that could be, that could be anyone's reads because I'm, I'm sometimes I'm confused about things that you are not confused about. Like Totoro. <laughs> like Totoro. Yeah. Maybe ocean waves would be more apt. Oh, I yes. don't know. Oh, man. Well, anyways, I recommend Howl. So again, it's a Stull versus Harry situation and you can decide <laughs> what, you, uh, <laughs> what you would like, but yeah. That's what it is. Okay. Anything else on Howell? I do appreciate that this was nominated for an Oscar because it is so, uh, at, at least to begin, so anti-American. <laughs> and it's just, it's either the American populace didn't didn't quite grasp it like I did, or we just uh, are sort of overwhelmed by Studio Ghibli all the time. Because certainly Howell's Movie Castle is another example where the visuals are just so stunning, um, especially the the central, the centerpiece of the uh, the moving castle which is quite uh, quite something and animated in like a somewhat different style, just uh, just good stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it did have to be nominated alongside these other movies. I don't know what the Pixar movie was that year, but I think it was kind of a, uh, it's almost like they split the difference. They didn't give it to the, the expected Pixar movie, but they didn't give it to Miyazaki. They gave it to the, the Wallace and Gromit, which is interesting, respectable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just so you know, Howl's blonde hair, goes to black after the orange situation ah yes (laughs) i saw something on instagram not recently but just about like i get everyone forgets that he had this you know this episode (laughs) this like um childish episode of of that but you get a sense of like who howell is right there because there's this rumor that he is with these young women and then he eats their hearts. And though that seems more likely of the witch of the waste because she's so enamored with um, Calcifer when she realizes it's, it's Hal's heart, but it's clearly like he really is a womanizer and that gets him into trouble because the witch of the waste, what is a good, I don't know. He dropped her pretty quickly and then, <laughs> or I guess he just didn't want her because she was way older anyways. And then because she kind of sensed Hal's essence on Sophie, like that whole thing. So a lot of issues because of, uh, because of that, but he doesn't, he does not treat Sophie poorly at all, except for that one yelling at her. <laughs> okay. Our number ones. <gasps> Oh my gosh. And it didn't take nine hours to get here. Oh my gosh. Finally. Yes. This is how <laughs> a proper podcast runs. Yes. Well, okay. So uh, because I'm a basic B, my number one is Spirited Away. And uh, I have to be careful when I approach this in terms of recommendation, because there's essentially two arguments that I'm making sort of simultaneously. One that it's my favorite Ghibli movie and my number one for this podcast, but also that it is possibly the greatest film I've ever seen. Mm. And those are two different sort of divergent discussions. And to the other one, the greatest movie, it's to me, what what's so impressive about the movie is that it is uh, exquisitely crafted. Now, where I'd usually say carefully designed, in this case, I'm going to say exquisitely crafted because the design is really evident uh, in nearly every moment. I took a bunch of notes. Oh, but before I get there, let me tell you what the movie is about. Yeah, what's Spirited Away about? Yeah, let's see how the synopsis is for this story. Oh, no. Here are your clothes. Hide them. I thought they'd been thrown away. You'll need them to get home. My goodbye card's still here. Chihiro. Chihiro. That's my name, isn't it? 
That's how Yubaba controls you, by stealing your name. So hold on to that card, keep it hidden, and while you're here, you must call yourself Sen. I can't believe I forgot my name. She almost took it from me. If you completely forget it, you'll never find your way home. I've tried everything to remember mine. You can't remember your name? No, but for some reason I remember yours. Here you go. Eat this. You must be hungry. No. I put a spell on it, so it'll give you back your strength. Just eat it. spoiled and naive making a lot of judgments this is very judgy uh 10 year old <laughs> chihiro ogino is less than pleased when she and her parents discover an abandoned amusement park on the way to their new house cautiously venturing inside she realizes that there is more to this place than meets the eye as strange things begin to happen once dusk falls ghostly apparitions and food that turns her parents into pigs are just the start chihiro has unwittingly crossed over into the spirit world now trapped, she must summon the courage to live and work amongst spirits with the help of the enigmatic Haku and the cast of unique characters she meets along the way. Vivid and intriguing, Sen to Chihiro no Kami Kakuchi, which is the Japanese title, tells the story of Chihiro's journey through an unfamiliar world as she strives to save her parents and return home. So yeah, this is a movie from 2001, winner of the Best Animated Feature Oscar, I think the only time that's ever been done by an anime, or an anime, although there have been nominations, I want to say Weathering With You, not, I, I'm mm. pretty sure your name was not nominated, which is kind of a surprise. But anyway, so I, I don't know how we've gone this whole podcast without mentioning um, one of the key players of Ghibli. By the way, the other founding member was Toshio Suzuki, but for this conversation, I suppose the the key member is Joe Hisaishi, who was the uh, composer on all these movies, and he is... One of the great film composers, um, Princess Mononoke has an absolutely incredible score. And for this one, it starts right away. Um, the first thing you you may notice is just that beautiful piano uh, leitmotif, which I think was mirrored in uh, Breath of the Wild uh, a lot later, which was kind of like Studio Ghibli, the, the game. And there is just this incredible sense of all the, the filmic elements sort of working in perfect harmony, that it, it feels kind of like a, a symphony almost and that was the strange word that i kept thinking because just the way that the story was told you know as i mentioned or quoted there is that part where chihiro was introduced to the spirit world her parents turn into pigs um and those two moments are so crucial because they are essentially together that it's not like uh she's like somebody tells her hey there's a bunch of ghosts uh, there's another world and it's spirits 
Um, it's it happens in concert with her losing her, her parents essentially, and so with every plot beat, with every introduction of a new idea, there is this underlying emotion that uh, is surprisingly effective every time. And and at some point, you just kind of surrender to it and stop being impressed by this children's movie or this animated movie, and you just kind of go along with it. And it is just this uh, cavalcade of just like super intriguing things, the spirits that you meet, whether it's the huge walrus sort of guy who doesn't say anything or the bouncing heads uh this this movie is really just it just bursting with imagination and i think what's interesting is that it kind of obviates the star trek problem where like you have some guy with a forehead and he's like an alien in this case like the in their brief appearances every new spirit like evinces some sort of alien culture uh, without even like speaking words like it's just like you just get this immediate sense for what they're about and that there's so much more suggested and as the story goes on she the main character Chihiro sort of uh interacts with these things and learns about them and it's essentially it is a coming of age story uh, and a very effective one again just in the way the the film is constructed Chihiro is a very effective audience proxy because um again there isn't that moment where somebody's just telling you what's going on like naked. Like it's just, it's always happening with something. And uh, she doesn't just communicate exposition. She facilitates it, but there is always this central through line of emotion. You know, we understand feelings like shock or betrayal. There's a moment of betrayal in the movie. And so there's just, it, it just for a two hour movie, which is very long, it just, it keeps moving because it doesn't have to slow down to explain things because you just sort of, you feel it and you intuit things. Um, and it actually sort of teaches you how to like read the world almost and understand something, which is her journey. Basically the approach to coming of age is kind of this generation of uh, empathy and compassion as we, uh, as you mentioned with um, Tyler's movie castle. And it's just, it, it, just the way that the character works and sort of changes is all very logical. Uh, and it begins when this massive creature comes into the, the bathhouse that she eventually works at and they call it a stink spirit. And everybody's like, oh my God, this thing is so horrible. And she deals with it because the, the smell is just so bad that somebody has to deal with it. So it's, it's not like she's this chosen one, um, although she her fate is sort of tied into another character as we discover, but she's just she just operates like anybody wouldn't sort of logically in a situation like this. And she solves problems um, and, she, and she grows. One of the weird things that I, I picked up on uh, last night when I was watching it for just the second time um, is how actually funny the movie gets. Like it gets funnier as it goes on, uh, which is sort of the opposite of what you would expect for a movie that makes me cry. Like I, I'm pretty sure I was crying in the theater. So I was crying last night. I was watching it um, because usually it starts out funny and that's how it sort of like opens you up emotionally. And then it hits you with a tragedy later. But this one, like the more you learn about the world, the more you learn about these characters, you just sort of understand them and see them interacting and there's this incredible sequence where these um, villainous characters who are menacing Chihiro, the giant baby and the like, the bird with the head of Yubaba the witch, they get transformed into smaller um, diminutive creatures. In one case, a mouse, and then like a little, like I, I guess a tiny bird. It's, it's even hard to describe, but they just sort of become allies of the of the main character, who just takes instant mercy on them, and then they just sort of have this like wordless. Uh, change of heart and character arc um and so it's just it's it's a movie that is just sort of like filled with this beauty and uh appreciation of humanity and uh by the time chihiro gets on the train to go 
one way to the uh, the other witch's house across this ocean. It's just like, God, the music and everything and like how far she's come, the characters, like, uh, it's just like, I have to, uh, I have to stop talking about it because I, I'm pretty sure I might just start crying right now and how embarrassing would that be? Well, I would cherish your tears, but ah. she's similar. I mean, she's similar to Sophie because there is that moment where Sophie and the Witch of the Waste from Hal um, are climbing up the stairs to get to the king. And the Witch of the Waste is heavy set <laughs> to be kind and no magic is allowed. Uh, she's got to do it on her own. And so then Sophie's old, but she's like cheering on the Witch of the Waste and trying to help her out. And then when the Witch of the Waste is aged even more and she ends up taking her and, and being compassionate to her. So, yeah, similar to that, where Tahiro, I think Chihiro, Chihiro, <laughs> it has this way about her i don't know if it's like her innocence perhaps and that she's not been maybe jaded by like negative humanity though there are characters around that are really mean-spirited in that house in the bathhouse but she i think more than takes pity but like she's certainly empathizing with some of these people i mean she is the one to pull out the weird bicycle thing and she's the one to help no face and mm-hmm. yeah those those turnarounds of potentially antagonist characters attaching themselves to somebody i think really speaks to the heart of that particular character there this one it, it's it's weird (laughs) (laughs) meaning like there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on which is why i think i wouldn't necessarily recommend it to a first time anime watcher because like if they if they can't handle the the strangeness which i find wonderful about anime that i think just like weirdness and beauty kind of go hand in hand with anime (laughs) but this is certainly one of the ones that i i would not recommend but watching her and it's just really interesting that i don't know how long this film takes like what is the span of time because she's working she ends up working and then she's got to of course uh, save her parents and then they leave as if nothing happens i don't know if that's like a span of a week is she there a month i i still each time i try to sort out a bit more because i'm still kind of wrapping my head around and confused with her relationship with a dragon what's his name Mm -hmm. haku Yeah, because they have a history together. Like she fell into the river, she nearly drowned, but she was saved by that spirit. And so now he's kind of with her again. So I kind of try to figure out because he balances between both worlds. Like he was existing in both like the pre-tunnel world and the post-tunnel. So I always try to work (laughs) through that. But it's certainly, I think it probably is one of the most, I don't know if fanciful would be, the right world word but it just seems like humans are not the norm and so like fantasy is the norm in this and I, I don't know if that's true of any of the other films that we've watched where there's like either a balance or it's heavier on the side of like normalcy and fantasy mm-hmm. isn't there but i think that's what makes this so special is because of the, the layers of fantasy and just one of the first scenes of her walking across the bridge and you see all the different types of people there that are not humans i i think really speaks highly and yeah the dust motes are so cute and the yes. little stars <laughs> <laughs> you see them the little stars yeah mm. so again just just cute fun things yeah i really like it. I, it didn't make my top five i do really enjoy this film but i i can't watch it repeatedly i don't know what yeah. it is I, I don't know if there's like too much going on so it's almost like overload but mm. yeah, it's also, again, just trying to sort out her relationship with Haku. 
Well, it's surprisingly not a light viewing experience. I mean, this is something that I would uh, still, I think, recommend to kids, although getting the age right is really tough because I would not have been interested in a movie like this at like the age of 10, which I think is probably, or like eight, maybe I think that's kind of earliest you wouldn't, because if I watched this movie when I was eight or younger than that, I would have A, had nightmares, (laughs) and B developed a crush on the Lynn character who's sort of like the oh, older yeah. uh, mentor. I, I think it's like, it's it, it's one of those movies where Miyazaki set out to help kids kind of like see the world or, or appreciate the world. And I think that that's, I mean, it, like I even felt that, like I was reminded watching the movie now of like moments in my life where I had feelings like that, where I sort of, you know, somebody you meet who you don't really like at first, like later on you you get a, a better picture for them and you appreciate them. Like it's essentially a movie about capturing that feeling. And also while at the same time being this incredible uh, fantasy world that essentially like, you know, there are movies that kind of take the, uh, the cantina scene from star Wars and have that moment, like in Hellboy two, where they go down to the troll market. And that's always a big highlight. Uh, Spirited away is essentially like that, but the whole movie, because it's really, I mean, it takes place in this one location that is just so deep and rich with detail that feels like a whole universe that by the time you have to leave it, it, it feels like you're really like leaving something behind. Um, uh, and then, of course, aided by the incredible score. So it's just, I mean, to me, it was such a surprising, um, overwhelming experience. Because I saw this at a, a special screening in theaters that I think was done by um, Fandom or Fandango or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I almost didn't go because I didn't want to drive three minutes to Universal Studios <laughs> because I'm a... Man, incredibly lazy. This is back when, you know, you could go to the theaters and be safe, and I still didn't want to go. Um, so I'm so glad that I did, because it was like, it was just the biggest prize. Because, you know, obviously I'd known about Spirited Away for forever. I mean, it's such a famous movie. And so I did not expect to have it, uh, just have this incredible effect on me. And I feel kind of dumb talking about it, being like, you got to see Spirited Away, as if ever, like people know <laughs> that they have to see Spirited Away. And so for me, like, I would recommend this, even for somebody who hasn't seen anime, because if you Ooh. say... Because if you gave them something else, if you said, watch, you know, not Akira, but something else, and they didn't like it, and they swore off anime, then they would never get to see Spirit of the I think that that would be absolutely uh, un- unacceptable. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Mm-hmm. Another character that I think represents the studio, No-Face. Oh, yeah. Which is really, oh, like, I feel like Totoro and No-Face are pretty well known, mm-hmm. which is really interesting that of this film. No face would be the one that is the the standout. I know because like when he appears in the film, I was like, oh god, like I forget what his deal is because he's never really explained. Yeah, um, and he has kind of an arc, but he remains a pretty mysterious character, uh, but very intriguing and uh, and uh, obviously an unforgettable design. And that whole, I mean, the image of her sitting on the train with no face and the little creatures like that is so uh, yeah. like that's an icon that people. Who haven't seen the film will have seen that before somewhere for sure. Yeah. And of course, you know, you could always buy a coin dispenser thing where you put a coin on a plate and then no face lifts it up. I've seen those. <laughs> oh, interesting. And that's number five. Okay. Anything else on Spirited Away? <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't wait to see if that's coming through my audio. I assume it is I because I can hear it. I would hope so. Otherwise, it's just people are going to have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, I know. What what sound? (laughs) Um, I guess my last note about Spirited Away is just that it manages not to feel um, patronizing in a way that I think a lot of morality plays or morality Mm. tales might. Um, I mean, that's the vibe that was intended with uh, Grave of the Fireflies. 
where it was supposed to be about like kids, you should, you know, really respect your elders or else you're going to die in a, a war. Um, and I, I think that's the vibe that I, I, the only vibe I don't like in the Ghibli oeuvre is when it's like about city people who move to the countryside and find like a better way of life. Like that just, it, it happens so often that I feel like it, it kind of gets to be a bit much. And in this case, like a girl growing up, like in this uh, plot summary, it starts off telling telling us that she is, um, oh gosh, what is it? Stubborn, spoiled, and naive. And like, I, I don't get, I don't get that. I mean, she just seems a little upset that she's moving, which is pretty, you know, natural for a kid. And so it's not so much that she like has to uh, really learn so much, but that she does grow and like striking that balance to where it doesn't feel um, chiding. I think it's a, is an, a, just another example of like very, very careful storytelling at play here. Do you feel like you might be a hypocrite? In what way? Well, yes, but in what way? <laughs> in the way that you left an urban center to go to not oh. necessarily a country, but you're not in an urban center anymore. No, I'm not. And I, I barely was in Los Angeles. I mean, that's a city that is a city in name only. Um, I didn't really have any experiences with other people. Uh, it was just very polluted and the, the sky was obscured by buildings. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I, I guess I, I did learn a lesson from that whole experience. I don't know. It, I, I saw Spirited Away in LA. So I, I think okay. that that's, that's why it's, I, I, I'm the exception. I see. So in moving to where you are now, you don't think that, I don't know, your viewpoints have changed or your life has changed at all? Yeah, maybe it could be, you know, I've been uh, farming a lot more. I've been, you know, pulling up the ghost crabs from the beach. Oh, if only, if only you took my advice and went out looking <laughs> for them. Oh boy. Okay. There it is. Spirited it away. Is. The pigs. I will say the scene with the pigs, well, the, the parents eating ravenously mm. and gluttonously reminds me of little nightmares the first game in particular because a lot of it is about gluttony and these like large people that just are eating and you don't want to know what they're eating but it just reminds me and there's one scene where you have to like escape them uh, and they're just at this they're on stools eating and then when you run past them they get a sniff and start trying to catch you and eat you but wow. oh, okay so they were eating for a week, maybe. Well, no, I guess they became pigs and then. Yeah, it's weird. The, the timeline, because it, yeah, it kind yeah. of resets almost a little bit. It's, it's, it's tricky, though, because, you know, Ghibli food is sort of famous for being like very delicious looking, despite being two dimensional illustrations. And yeah. so it's like, well, how could you how could you resist if you were in that situation? You it's know? true. Yep. Oh, man. Well, my number one. <laughs> Should be a shock to no one. I think even you, you know, because I confessed it. It's <laughs> Kiki's delivery service. I did have a shirt with Kiki. I couldn't find it today, but I did wear my Ghibli Halloween shirt with all the peoples on it. it. Hurry up! We always said we'd leave on the perfect night, didn't we? Uh-uh. Our plan was that we would stick around for another month and play it safe. I like that plan. And if we put it off for a month and I find some wonderful boyfriend, then what'll we do? Come on, Gigi. I'm going to put my paws together and pray you're not serious. Of course I am. You know ever since I turned 13, I've been excited about making this trip. There. Dad! Dad, guess what? I've decided to leave tonight. You're going away? Yeah, there's a full moon. 
Well, yeah, but what happened to the camping trip we were supposed to take this weekend? Sorry, Dad. Yeah, I'll expect you then. Thanks. Hi, Mom, it's me. I wanted to make sure you knew that Kiki is leaving tonight. Yes, midnight. Very pretty. Lilac would look prettier on me, or white. Witches have worn this color for a very long time, Kiki. Oh, Mom, I look really dumb. It's not really important what color your dress is. What matters is the heart inside. Well, I'm going to be the very best witch that I can be, Mom. And I know having a good heart is important. Just follow your heart and keep smiling. Yeah. So in Japanese, it is Majo no Takiuben. 1989 animated fantasy film written, produced, and directed by Miyazaki and adapted from the 1985 novel by Aiko Kadono. And I've looked for this, but I feel like it's only in Japanese and it's like out of print, so I can't find it, which is sad. Kiki, a 13-year-old witch in training, must spend a year living on her own in a distant town in order to become a full-fledged witch. Leaving her family and friends, Kiki undertakes this tradition when she flies out into the open world atop her broomstick with her black cat, Gigi. As she settles down in the coastal town of Koriko, Kiki struggles to adapt and ends up wandering the streets with no place to stay until she encounters Osuno, who offers Kiki boarding in exchange for making... <laughs> What's happening over there? I don't know. Ex- I like Sorry. Keep going. The bodies are hitting the floor. <laughs> okay. Who offers Kiki boarding in exchange for making deliveries for her small bakery? Before long, Kiki decides to open her own courier service by broomstick, beginning her journey to independence. In attempting to find her place among the townsfolk, Kiki brings with her exciting new experiences and comes to understand the true meaning of responsibility. And I will say that there comes a point in this film that she ends up losing her witch abilities. Uh, She can't hear Gigi speaking, and then she is unable to fly. So a lot of this is kind of wrapped up in some stuff I'll talk about. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so (laughs) why do I love this film? Now, this is a film that I will say that I don't think it's the best Ghibli Ghibli film, but it is my favorite. I think it will always be my favorite. It would have to be really really good in order to supplant this as my number one and this is something that i could watch repeatedly that i would enjoy it 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 wouldn't wear down on me but you know it's good to to save some of those things for a bad day and and have you cheer it up I love Kiki. I think that she (laughs) is a fun character, a 13-year-old. She is pretty representative as well as a realistic representation of a 13-year-old. And I say that having, again, taught them for 10 plus years and just the awkwardness that's there uh, with boys trying to understand who you are. She leaves her family. So you've got this this girl who's struggling with uh, independence as well as, you know, reliance, either self-reliance or reliance on others. So you start to see that as she grows. She starts to doubt herself. I think a, a lot of the, the strong message from this, similar to Whisper of the Heart, is finding what you're passionate about, believing in yourself. I think also liking what you're doing because certain points, especially when she gives the, what is it? The herring and pumpkin pie, I believe it is. <laughs> and the girl who receives it is so snotty. And that's also when Kiki gets sick and she's just really downtrodden. I think she starts to just 
look at what she's doing, look at the people around her. And she also is not fitting in and not having people groups. So it just starts to weigh heavy on her. And those emotions start to pull away, I think, her her magical ability. And until there's something that is at stake, something huge at stake, her friend Tombo, which probably her future love interest. I mean, they're certainly friends and he I clearly has a crush on her. His life is in danger. She realizes, you know, the power that she has, that she cares for Tombo, that it's important, her abilities, her flying abilities, and that she's the only one that can really save him, that she's able to reclaim her flight and her magical superpowers. But I, yeah, I love how exuberant she is how it shows what it's like to leave home for the first time, even though she's 13. So this is extreme and be in a new place and not know anyone, not have any lodgings. And then the kindness of strangers and how are you interacting with people? How are you using your skills and how can you barter with someone or work with someone and and come up with some good terms of I'm living here, but what can I do to help you? And then trying to fit in. And she, uh, beauty, I think, is another theme here, just because she complains a great deal about her dress, her, I think it's a lilac flock, I think she calls it, but she wishes there was something else. And she compares herself a lot with the town girls. And I think that's, you know, the, the whole comparison destroys contentment. I think that really is something that leads into that doubt and, and her losing her powers um, and not really having friends. And when she sees Tombo with those people, she's like, no, I can't be with you. So there's so much going on. And uh, it's sometimes hard to watch. Like, it's really sad, some of this stuff that's going on and how hard she works and and that bratty girl not accepting it. And then just girls sometimes not being nice and what happens you know that our confidence our confidence goes down (laughs) and uh we've got a yeah we've got a reconcile with that and i'm glad that she gets her powers back though there is an ambiguous ending depending on what you're watching there are two different endings one which Gigi just meows at the end and one which the voice actor says something so that's like, oh, what's happened here is, you know, is does she have her full powers or does she not? But it's I feel like it's a beautiful film and I, I think it really gets at what it's like to be a 13 year old. I mean, these are extreme circumstances, but I think it gets to that awkwardness and how hard it is and then leap, you know, throwing upon independence and trying to figure out who she is as a witch and what is her skill set and everything I think is, is pretty powerful. And she meets friends along the way inadvertently as all the, the great Ghibli characters do. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that's, but that's what I'll say. Now, this is something again. You were not, <laughs> you were not on board fully for. Still confused, but yeah. Thoughts? Uh, this movie definitely captures more than most Miyazaki. One of Miyazaki's great fixations, which is the the sensation of flying and how fun that would be. And I think there are a lot of really breathtaking sequences uh, where you know she's reaching out to somebody and, and stuff like that. I, I admire what you, how you describe the movie, how you talk about it, and what you see in it as you describe it. I'm sort of remembering, like, oh, yeah, that was really nice. I think for me, it's just about the chosen subject matter. I think this is also based on a novel. It might even be a non-Japanese novel. For me, like, one of the things that, one of the reasons why I didn't like fantasy growing up was because of wizards. I just, like, could not deal with wizards, specifically, like, you know, Harry Potter. And now that that's 
become invoked this this on harry potter um <laughs> I, I guess i feel vindicated whatever it's it's gotten pretty harsh uh but you know i i just i can't stand that stuff uh and then i guess witches in this kind of interpretation it's i guess it's just sort of the the female version and it's a little bit more interesting because of that but uh ultimately i don't know i just i just never really got i i never really had like that fantasy of like being able to like cast spells or anything like that um and so while i can appreciate the dramatic aspects of it i can't fully grok the actual fantastical conceits um which is unfortunate but um i mean other than that like i certainly like i i don't dislike this movie unlike some of the others uh like i can definitely appreciate its its spirits and its more light uh light-hearted tone but yeah for me it wasn't one that really reached out and grabbed me uh, in quite the same way do you think i'm going to say something sexist here do you think that it would have reached you differently if you were female? Uh, maybe. I mean, I actually one of the uh, on that top ten episode that you were on, Stella. Um, the very first version of that, which was many years ago, I had uh, a co-host, a friend of mine, Cassandra, and she talked about Kiki um, as one of her entries. I had never seen the movie until we watched it, so I think maybe there was some sort of like male female, just like natural gravitation or repelling uh against the idea of witches um and it's not like i have anything against girls or women like not really i don't know it's just uh, again i've never i've never had that that desire to fly around on a broomstick or wave a wand around and even when i say it it sounds like i'm insulting you but i'm just describing literally what happens in these things but yeah um yeah i don't know i don't want to be in this space or in this mode but i just i couldn't i couldn't get on board with it the same way I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, I th- I think it does. Well, for me, anyways, I think the issues probably transcend male, female in, in the teenage mm-hmm. sense, because a lot of the issues that she goes through, I think male 13 year olds would as well. And perhaps yeah. the beauty issue would not be as prevalent. I think there'd be something else. But feeling like an outsider, I think, is something that we've all dealt with. I, I get what you're saying. I, I think maybe I wouldn't be. I think her witchcraft or like her being a witch is like safer because her skill is flying. I think if it were like using magical words to do something, it'd be completely different. So it's, it's a bit safer in that respect. But even in the beginning when she flies off, which is very quick, she's like, I'm going to do, it's a full moon. We're doing it. And she meets that one witch and the witch had already been in a town and is going somewhere else. And her skill is fortune telling. And you can tell that Kiki just went off without thinking because she's like, oh, a skill. I wonder what my skill will be. And it's like, (laughs) oh, no, Kiki. But yeah, she's like, well, I'm pretty deft at flying. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to do that. And so I think that's really unique because everyone else would probably do like potions or something like that. Right. I also like the fact that in order to save Tombo, she was well, she her broom broke and she was in the process of making a new one when she kind of discovered that her power was gone. But she's on the street and she steals like a street sweeper's broom and says, I'll give it back. I promise, which she never does. <laughs> but it's the street sweeper broom. And she ends up like at the very end, because there's an ending to it, it, you have to watch through the credits because there is an end credit scene. She still has that broom, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> but I don't know about the, the, I was thinking about that when I was watching it yesterday or the day before that in creating something, which is something, you know, like Star Wars fans, the, the Jedi create their own lightsaber with Harry Potter, which you don't like. They, you know, the wand is kind of picked like how they 
work with it. So it's interesting that she took something that was already pre-made and didn't remake her own. But I guess mm. the significance of how she got it is probably pretty powerful. So she used that and she was able to, that broom was wonky because Tombo <laughs> barely made it out alive, but she was able to really work with that broom afterwards. So there's probably a lot of stuff there, but yeah, I do love the Kiki and um, Gigi is again, very cute. So it's again, that those familiars, those little, those little animals that you have. And there's a romance story in there too, because Gigi falls in love with the white cat. If you remember that, yes. the neighbor cat that he says is a snooty cat, but then they have some children. They have three white cats and a black cat as a, <laughs> as a child. I don't know if that works uh, genetically or not, but we'll go with it. <laughs> well, okay. How do you feel? I feel like uh, I may I may just have escaped this one with our, our friendship in tech. Who knows? May have. <laughs> oh, boy. Even though you said, I don't understand Howell. I don't like witches, <laughs> but yeah, maybe you have. Hey, oh, uh, wait, I know uh, I know how to rescue this, actually, because now we can talk about my actual number one, which is a movie by the name of Ghost in the Shell 2. Whatever. Studio that is well, not. I'm so glad I got out of that. I didn't need that in my life because I, I would have had to watch the first one. And it's funny. It actually doesn't say Studio Ghibli anywhere on this <laughs> disc. <laughs> oh, false advertising. It, it was a co-production or some sort of uh, co-production with IG and uh, I suppose Kadansha was a distributor, but that's a very beautiful movie that I think um, we're not going to talk about. Anyway, I, I mean, I Ghibli is a, it was interesting to really like, you know, watch all those movies sort of in a compressed timeline. I, I did not expect that to happen. And I wonder if I would have ever watched them um, without your impetus. So it was really good to have that sort of curated experience and I, I thank you for it because there were a lot of a uh, lot of hidden gems in there. You're welcome. So 2023, we'll have a horror film. <laughs> 2023, we're just gonna skip this year altogether. Well, it might take us a while. We have to carefully oh, we have yeah. to carefully curate because I'm not about to watch gore fest. You've got to be like worthwhile ones like Midsommar and Hereditary. Hereditary. Well, ironically, I did just watch yeah. The Witch. From 2015, yeah, and that was a that was a witch I did enjoy. Okay, this there. So you're a hypocrite again for the second time exactly. tonight, right? Doesn't it just enrage and confuse everyone? Truly, when there's hypocrisy, yes, I well, think especially so. from me, yeah. From you, but, are you not normally a hypocrite? <laughs> <laughs> what? What are you saying? It's 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 too late. I've uh, I can't. I'm not, no longer making sense with the things I'm saying. So but yeah, I'm we've reached that point, friends, mm-hmm. listeners. If you listen to Quinoa, you'll know <laughs> that there's a certain point in the episode that yeah, he loses track of what he's saying. Sometimes it's Donovan's fault because he interrupts you and then he can't get back <laughs> on track. Maybe ninety percent it's Donovan's fault, but then yeah. So here we are. Well, it's a good thing that we're nearly over. So you don't have to worry about that. But thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on. It was a, it was a pleasure. I was looking forward to it. Thanks for spending 50 hours maybe together. Could be. That's yeah. not an exaggeration. I think probably. Right. Mm-mm-mm. A lot of movies. A lot of movies. Where can listeners find you and what can they do to support you? Well, listeners or readers can find me on With Eyes East, which is about, uh, similar to this, 
Asian pop culture and media. I did write something about Princess Mononoke after we'd watched it, just talking about how surprisingly unclear that movie was. <laughs> and I might end up writing Sleep on Spirited Away. And that is where you can find our next installment in the Ghibli cast. I think we, we've probably left enough that we can still talk you know, at length about the, the studio and everything yeah. for another one. But my main source, my main plug, of course, is uh, Quinoa. I mean, Quinoa. Oh, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I can't say it correctly in the presence of Stella. <laughs> but anyway, you can find that at QuinoAnswers.com. Just follow uh, Donovan on uh, Twitter. I don't know if he shares any shirtless pics there, but that's always, uh, always welcome. Always a good site. Donovan, of course, is the man you've if you're a, a listener, then you've heard him before. And uh, that's the podcast that we do together where we talk about social issues inquisitively and come to many revelatory conclusions that are always blowing Stella away. And she's like, oh, my God, you guys are so concrete <laughs> and conclusive and coherent with your ideas. Thank Heck you, Stella. No, no. Let me tell you two <laughs> things. Number one, Donovan does take a lot of shirtless pictures. And at one point on Twitter today. Because it popped up, I guess, because Donovan, I don't know. But it's someone posted like take or post your last picture with no commentary. And Donovan responds, I better not. (laughs) So who even knows what he's been doing? But secondly, what was my second point? Oh, on the Candace Owens episode, this is something that you can expect from Quinoa Mm -hmm. is that at the very beginning, beginning, Donovan said something along the lines of, I don't think she's stupid. I don't she's I don't think she's ignorant. And then as the time went on, I'm hearing him say, actually, she's just ignorant. She's dumb. I'm like, okay, so 50 minutes in, she's like, yeah. So just know that you might they contradict themselves before they answer questions. Expect hypocrisy and you won't be disappointed. Yep. When can we expect with eyes east? This episode that let me raise. Oh no, I had the Harry situation happen. When can we expect the crossover of the Ghibli Ghibli on with Eyes East? What month would you say? What month? I don't know. What's a good month for you? I don't... Okay, well, I know when we're recording. You know, we're recording next oh. week. Okay, so that was my yeah, that was my question. Oh, I was okay, but I just wondered, were you waiting until February to release it? Do you think that would be better? Oh, no, this isn't your show. Don't ask me questions. I was just <laughs> asking you questions so that people know when to go over there. I see. No, no, you can expect it in January. Oh, wow. Look, he came up with an answer, folks. <laughs> He's not a complete waste. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolloracle at gmail.com. Do you have an email you want or do you want me to just forward things that people email me you about you? Uh, you can, you can just forward them to me. That'd be great. I okay. expect many great comments about my sexy glasses. I don't know. My intense, uh, intelligent. Okay. The flushing, the got. plumbing in your the, house. The plumbing, which is And very good. hopefully I, I just want people to be enraged and inflamed at your not liking Howell and Kiki. Exactly. So if here's you hoping. Send those, send those comments. <laughs> I will. Absolutely. You can find the show, obviously, anywhere that podcasts exist. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Backroll the Oracle. And subscribe to the show on YouTube so you can watch these things happen. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. 
Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Grimm podcast. And until next time, fly on Babs and Studio Ghibli and Nausicaa, Kiki, and Sophie, and all of those females. That's how they do. That's what they do. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?